When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 27 of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 27 Beginning at the Other End. Robert Audley walked slowly through the leafless grove under the bare and shadowless trees in the grey February atmosphere, thinking as he went of the discovery he had just made. "'I have that in my pocket-book, he pondered, which forms the connecting link between the woman whose death George Tallboys read of in the Times newspaper, and the woman who rules in my uncle's house. The history of Lucy Graham ends abruptly on the threshold of Mrs. Vincent's school. She entered that establishment in August, 1854. The schoolmistress and her assistant can tell me this— but they cannot tell me whence she came. They cannot give me one clue to the secrets of her life from the day of her birth until the day she entered that house. I can go no further in this backward investigation of my lady's antecedents. What am I to do, then, if I mean to keep my promise to Clara Tallboys? He walked on for a few paces, revolving this question in his mind, with a darker shadow than the shadows of the gathering winter twilight on his face, and a heavy oppression of mingled sorrow and dread weighing down his heart. My duty is clear enough, he thought, not the less clear because it leads me step by step, carrying ruin and desolation with me to the home I love. I must begin at the other end. I must begin at the other end and discover the history of Helen Tallboys from the hour of George's departure until the day of the funeral in the churchyard at Ventnor. Mr. Audley held a passing hansom and drove back to his chambers. He reached Fig Tree Court in time to write a few lines to Miss Tallboys and to post his letter at St. Martin's Le Grand off before six o'clock. "'It will save me a day,' he thought, as he drove to the general post-office with this brief epistle. He had written to Clara Tallboys to inquire the name of the little seaport town in which George had met Captain Malden and his daughter, for in spite of the intimacy between the two young men, Robert Audley knew very few particulars of his friend's brief married life. From the hour in which George Tallboys had read the announcement of his wife's death in the columns of the Times, he had avoided all mention of the tender history which had been so cruelly broken, the familiar record which had been so darkly blotted out. There was so much that was painful in that brief story. There was such bitter self-reproach involved in the recollection of that desertion which must have seemed so cruel to her who waited and watched at home. Robert Audley comprehended this, and he did not wonder at his friend's silence. The sorrowful story had been tacitly avoided by both— and Robert was as ignorant of the unhappy history of this one year in his schoolfellow's life as if they had never lived together in friendly companionship in those snug temple chambers. The letter, written to Miss Tallboys by her brother George, within a month of his marriage, was dated Harrogate. It was at Harrogate, therefore, Robert concluded, the young couple spent their honeymoon. Robert Audley had requested Clara Tallboys to telegraph an answer to this question— in order to avoid the loss of a day in the accomplishment of the investigation he had promised to perform. 
The telegraphic answer reached Figtree Court before twelve o'clock the next day. The name of the seaport town was Wildernsea, Yorkshire. Within an hour of the receipt of this message, Mr. Audley arrived at the King's Cross station, and took his ticket for Wildernsea by an express train that started at a quarter before two. The shrieking engine bore him on the dreary northward journey, whirling him over desert wastes of flat meadowland and bare cornfields, faintly tinted with fresh-sprouting green. This northern road was strange and unfamiliar to the young barrister, and the wide expanse of the wintry landscape chilled him by its aspect of bare loneliness. The knowledge of the purpose of his journey blighted every object upon which his absent glances fixed themselves for a moment, only to wander wearily away, only to turn inward upon that far darker picture, always presenting itself to his anxious mind. It was dark when the train reached the hall terminus, but Mr. Audley's journey was not ended. Amidst a crowd of porters and scattered heaps of that incongruous and heterogeneous luggage with which travellers encumber themselves, he was led, bewildered and half-asleep, to another train which was to convey him along the branch-line that swept past Wildernsea, and skirted the border of the German Ocean. Half an hour after leaving Hull, Robert felt the briny freshness of the sea upon the breeze that blew in at the open window of the carriage, and an hour afterward the train stopped at a melancholy station, built amid a sandy desert, and inhabited by two or three gloomy officials, one of whom rung a terrific peal upon a harshly clanging bell as the train approached. Mr. Audley was the only passenger who alighted at the dismal station. The train swept on to the gayer scenes before the barrister had time to collect his senses, or to pick up the portmanteau which had been discovered with some difficulty, amid a black cavern of baggage only illuminated by one lantern. "'I wonder whether settlers in the backwoods of America feel as solitary and strange as I feel to-night,' he thought, as he stared hopelessly about him in the darkness. He called to one of the officials, and pointed to his portmanteau. "'Will you carry that to the nearest hotel for me?' he said. "'That is to say, if I can get a good bed there.' The man laughed as he shouldered the portmanteau. "'You can get thirty beds, I dare say, sir, if you wanted them," he said. "'We ain't over-busy at Wildernsea at this time of year. This way, sir.' The porter opened a wooden door in the station wall, and Robert Audley found himself upon a wide bowling green of smooth grass, which surrounded a huge square building— that loomed darkly on him through the winter's night, its black solidity only relieved by two lighted windows, far apart from each other, and glimmering redly like beacons on the darkness. "'This is the Victoria Hotel, sir,' said the porter. "'You wouldn't believe the crowds of company we have down here in the summer.' In the face of the bare grass-plot, the tenantless wooden alcoves, and the dark windows of the hotel, it was indeed rather difficult to imagine that the place was ever gay with merry people taking pleasure in the bright summer weather— but Robert Audley declared himself willing to believe anything the porter pleased to tell him, and followed his guide meekly to a little door at the side of the big hotel, which led into a comfortable bar, where the humbler class of summer visitors were accommodated with such refreshments as they pleased to pay for, without running the gantlet of the prim, white-waistcoated waiters on guard at the principal entrance. But there were very few attendants retained at the hotel in the bleak February season— and it was the landlord himself who ushered Robert into a dreary wilderness of polished mahogany tables and horsehair-cushioned chairs, which he called the coffee-room. Mr. Audley seated himself close to the wide steel fender, and stretched his cramped legs upon the hearth-rug, while the landlord drove the poker into the vast pile of coal, and sent a ruddy blaze roaring upward through the chimney. "'If you would prefer a private room, sir,' the man began. "'No, thank you,' said Robert indifferently. 
This room seems quite private enough just now. If you will order me a mutton chop and a pint of sherry, I shall be obliged. Certainly, sir. And I shall be still more obliged if you will favour me with a few minutes' conversation before you do so. With very great pleasure, sir, the landlord answered good-naturedly. We see so very little company at this season of the year, that we are only too glad to oblige those gentlemen who do visit us. Any information which I can afford you respecting the neighbourhood of Wildernsea and its attractions— added the landlord, unconsciously quoting a small handbook of the watering-place which he sold in the bar, "'I shall be most happy to—' "'But I don't want to know anything about the neighbourhood of Wildernsea,' interrupted Robert, with a feeble protest against the landlord's volubility. "'I want to ask you a few questions about some people who once lived here.' The landlord bowed and smiled, with an air which implied his readiness to recite the biographies of all the inhabitants of the little seaport, if required by Mr. Audley to do so. "'How many years have you lived here?' Robert asked, taking his memorandum-book from his pocket. "'Will it annoy you if I make notes of your replies to my questions?' "'Not at all, sir,' replied the landlord, with a pompous enjoyment of the air of solemnity and importance which pervaded this business. "'Any information which I can afford that is likely to be of ultimate value—yes, thank you,' Robert murmured, interrupting the flow of words. "'You have lived here—' six years, sir.' "'Since the year fifty-three. "'Since November in the year fifty-two, sir. I was in business in Hull prior to that time. This house was only completed in the October before I entered it. "'Do you remember a lieutenant in the Navy, on half-pay, I believe, at that time called Malden?' "'Captain Malden, sir?' "'Yes, commonly called Captain Malden. I see you do remember him.' "'Yes, sir. Captain Malden was one of our best customers. He used to spend his evenings in this very room.' though the walls were damp at that time, and we weren't able to paper the place for nearly a twelvemonth afterward. His daughter married a young officer that came here with his regiment at Christmas time in fifty-two. They were married here, sir, and they travelled on the continent for six months, and came back here again. But the gentleman ran away to Australia, and left the lady a week or two after her baby was born. The business made quite a sensation in Wildernsea, sir, and Mrs.—Mrs.—I forgot the name— "'Mrs. Tallboys,' suggested Robert. "'To be sure, sir, Mrs. Tallboys. Mrs. Tallboys was very much pitied by the Wildernsea folks, sir. I was going to say, for she was very pretty, and had such nice winning ways that she was a favourite with everybody who knew her. "'Can you tell me how long Mr. Malden and his daughter remained at Wildernsea after Mr. Tallboys left them?' Robert asked. "'Well, no, sir,' answered the landlord, after a few moments' deliberation. I can't say exactly how long it was. I know Mr. Malden used to sit here in this very parlour, and tell people how badly his daughter had been treated, and how he'd been deceived by a young man he'd put so much confidence in. But I can't say how long it was before he left Wildernsea. But Mrs. Barcam could tell you, sir," added the landlord briskly. Mrs. Barcam. Yes, Mrs. Barcam is the person who owns number 17 North Cottages, the house in which Mr. Malden and his daughter lived. She's a nice, civil-spoken, motherly woman, sir, and I'm sure she'll tell you anything you may want to know. Thank you. I will call upon Mrs. Barkham to-morrow. Stay. One more question. Should you recognize Mrs. Tallboys if you were to see her? Certainly, sir. As sure as I should recognize one of my own daughters. Robert Audley wrote Mrs. Barkham's address in his pocket-book, ate his solitary dinner, drank a couple of glasses of sherry, smoked a cigar— and then retired to the apartment in which a fire had been lighted for his comfort. He soon fell asleep, worn out with the fatigue of hurrying from place to place during the last two days, 
but his slumber was not a heavy one, and he heard the disconsolate moaning of the wind upon the sandy wastes, and the long waves rolling in monotonously upon the flat shore. Mingling with these dismal sounds, the melancholy thoughts engendered by his joyless journey repeated themselves in never-varying succession in the chaos of his slumbering brain, and made themselves into visions of things that never had been and never could be upon this earth, but which had some vague relation to real events remembered by the sleeper. In those troublesome dreams he saw Audley Court, rooted up from amidst the green pastures and the shady hedgerows of Essex, standing bare and unprotected upon that desolate northern shore, threatened by the rapid rising of a boisterous sea, whose waves seemed gathering upward to descend and crush the house he loved. As the hurrying waves rolled nearer and nearer to the stately mansion, the sleeper saw a pale, starry face looking out of the silvery foam, and knew that it was my lady, transformed into a mermaid, beckoning his uncle to destruction. Beyond that rising sea great masses of cloud, blacker than the blackest ink, more dense than the darkest night, lowered upon the dreamer's eye. But as he looked at the dismal horizon, the storm-clouds slowly parted, and from a narrow rent in the darkness, a ray of light streamed out upon the hideous waves, which slowly, very slowly, receded, leaving the old mansion safe and firmly rooted on the shore. Robert awoke with the memory of this dream in his mind, and a sensation of physical relief, as if some heavy weight, which had oppressed him all the night, had been lifted from his breast. He fell asleep again, and did not awake until the broad winter sunlight shone upon the window-blind, and the shrill voice of the chambermaid at his door announced that it was half-past eight o'clock. At a quarter before ten he had left Victoria Hotel, and was making his way along the lonely platform in front of a row of shadowless houses that faced the sea. This row of hard, uncompromising, square-built habitations stretched away to the little harbour, in which two or three merchant vessels and a couple of colliers were anchored. Beyond the harbour there loomed, grey and cold upon the wintry horizon, a dismal barrack, parted from the wilderness houses by a narrow creek, spanned by an iron drawbridge. The scarlet coat of the sentinel who walked backward and forward between two cannons, placed at remote angles before the barrack wall, was the only scrap of colour that relieved the neutral-tinted picture of the grey stone houses and the leaden sea. On one side of the harbour a long stone pier stretched out far away into the cruel loneliness of the sea, as if built for the especial accommodation of some modern Timon, too misanthropical to be satisfied even with the solitude of wildernessy, and anxious to get still further away from his fellow-creatures. It was on that pier George Talboys had first met his wife, under the blazing glory of a midsummer sky, and to the music of a braying band. It was there that the young cornet had first yielded to that sweet delusion, that fatal infatuation which had exercised so dark an influence upon his after-life. Robert looked savagely at this solitary watering-place, the shabby seaport. "'It is such a place as this,' he thought, "'that works a strong man's ruin. He comes here, heart whole and happy, with no better experience of women than is to be learned at a flower-show or in a ballroom, with no more familiar knowledge of the creature than he has of the far-away satellites or the remoter planets, with a vague notion that she is a whirling teetotum in pink and blue gauze, or a graceful automaton for the display of milliner's manufacture. He comes to some place of this kind, and the universe is suddenly narrowed into about a half-dozen acres, the mighty scheme of creation is crushed into a bandbox. The far-away creatures whom he had seen floating about him, beautiful and indistinct, are brought under his very nose, and before he has time to recover his bewilderment, hey, presto, the witchcraft has begun, 
The magic circle is drawn around him. The spells are at work. The whole formula of sorcery is in full play, and the victim is as powerless to escape as the marble-legged prince in the Eastern story. Ruminating in this wise, Robert Audley reached the house to which he had been directed as the residence of Mrs. Barkham. He was admitted immediately by a prim, elderly servant, who ushered him into a sitting-room as prim and elderly-looking as herself. Mrs. Barkham, a comfortable matron of about sixty years of age, was sitting in an armchair before a bright handful of fire in the shining grate. An elderly terrier, whose black-and-tan coat was thickly sprinkled with grey, reposed in Mrs. Barkham's lap. Every object in the quiet sitting-room had an elderly aspect of simple comfort and precision, which is the evidence of outward repose. "'I should like to live here,' Robert thought, "'and watch the grey sea slowly rolling over the grey sand under the still grey sky. I should like to live here, and tell the beads upon my rosary, and repent, and rest.' He seated himself in the armchair opposite Mrs. Barkham, at that lady's invitation, and placed his hat upon the ground. The elderly terrier descended from his mistress's lap to bark at and otherwise take objection to this hat. "'You were wishing, I suppose, sir, to take one—be quiet, Dash—one of the cottages,' suggested Mrs. Barkham, whose mind ran in one narrow groove, and whose life during the last twenty years had been an unvarying round of house-letting. Robert Audley explained the purpose of his visit. "'I come to ask one simple question,' he said, in conclusion. I wish to discover the exact date of Mrs. Talboy's departure from Wildernsea. The proprietor of the Victoria Hotel informed me that you were the most likely person to afford me that information." Mrs. Barkham deliberated for some moments. "'I can give you the date of Captain Malden's departure,' she said, "'for he left number 17 considerably in my debt, and I have the whole business in black and white. But with regard to Mrs. Talboy's—Mrs. Barkham paused for a few moments before resuming. "'You are aware that Mrs. Talboy's left rather abruptly?' she asked. "'I was not aware of that fact.' "'Indeed. Yes, she left abruptly, poor little woman. She tried to support herself after her husband's desertion by giving music lessons. She was a very brilliant pianist, and succeeded pretty well, I believe. But I suppose her father took her money from her, and spent it in public houses. However that might be, they had a very serious misunderstanding one night and the next morning Mrs. Talboys left Wildernsea, leaving her little boy, who was out at nurse in the neighbourhood. "'But you cannot tell me the date of her leaving?' "'I'm afraid not,' answered Mrs. Barkham. "'And yet stay. Captain Malden wrote to me upon the day his daughter left. He was in very great distress, poor old gentleman, and he always came to me in his troubles. If I could find that letter, it might be dated, you know. Mightn't it now?' Mr. Audley said that it was only probable the letter was dated. Mrs. Barkham retired to a table in the window on which stood an old-fashioned mahogany desk, lined with green baize, and suffering from a plethora of documents, which oozed out of it in every direction. Letters, receipts, bills, inventories, and tax-papers were mingled in hopeless confusion, and among these Mrs. Barkham set to work to search for Captain Malden's letter. Mr. Audley waited very patiently, watching the grey clouds sailing across the grey sky, the grey vessels gliding past upon the grey sea. After about ten minutes' search, and a great deal of rustling, crackling, folding and unfolding of the papers, Mrs. Barkham uttered an exclamation of triumph. "'I've got the letter,' she said, "'and there's a note inside it from Mrs. Tallboy's.' Robert Audley's pale face flushed a vivid crimson as he stretched out his hand to receive the papers. 
The persons who stole Helen Malden's love-letters from George's trunk in my chambers might well have saved themselves the trouble," he thought. The letter from the old lieutenant was not long, but almost every other word was underscored. "'My generous friend,' the writer began. Mr. Malden had tried the lady's generosity pretty severely during his residence in her house, rarely paying his rent until threatened with the intruding presence of the broker's man. "'I am in the depths of despair. My daughter has left me. You may imagine my feelings. We had a few words last night upon the subject of money matters, which subject has always been a disagreeable one between us, and on rising this morning I found I was deserted. The enclosed from Helen was waiting for me on the parlour table. Yours in distraction and despair. Henry Malton. North Cottages. August 16th, 1854. The note from Mrs. Tallboys was still more brief. It began abruptly thus. I am weary of my life here and wish, if I can, to find a new one. I go out into the world, dissevered from every link which binds me to the hateful past, to seek another home and another fortune. Forgive me if I have been fretful, capricious, changeable. You should forgive me, for you know why I have been so. You know the secret which is the key to my life. Helen Tallboys These lines were written in a hand that Robert Audley knew only too well. He sat for a long time pondering silently over the letter written by Helen Tallboys. What was the meaning of those last two sentences? You should forgive me, for you know why I have been so. You know the secret which is the key to my life. He wearied his brain in endeavouring to find a clue to the signification of these two sentences. He could remember nothing, nor could he imagine anything that would throw a light upon their meaning. The date of Helen's departure, according to Mr. Malden's letter, was the 16th of August, 1854. Miss Tonks had declared that Lucy Graham entered the school at Crescent Villas upon the 17th or 18th of August in the same year. Between the departure of Helen Tallboys from the Yorkshire watering-place, and the arrival of Lucy Graham at the Brompton School, not more than eight and forty hours could have elapsed. This made a very small link in the chain of circumstantial evidence, perhaps, but it was a link nonetheless, and it fitted neatly into its place. "'Did Mr. Malden hear from his daughter after she had left Wildernsea?' Robert asked. "'Well, I believe he did hear from her,' Mrs. Barkham answered. "'But I didn't see much of the old gentleman after that August. I was obliged to sell him up in November, poor fellow, for he owed me fifteen months' rent, and it was only by selling his poor little bits of furniture that I could get him out of my place. We parted very good friends, in spite of my sending in the brokers, and the old gentleman went to London with the child, who was scarcely a twelve-month old.' Mrs. Barkham had nothing more to tell, and Robert had no further questions to ask. He requested permission to retain the two letters written by the lieutenant and his daughter, and left the house with them in his pocket-book. He walked straight back to the hotel, where he called for a time-table. An express for London left Wildernsea at a quarter-past one. Robert sent his portmanteau to the station, paid his bill, and walked up and down the stone terrace fronting the sea, waiting for the starting of the train. I have traced the histories of Lucy Graham and Helen Tallboys to a vanishing point, he thought. My next business is to discover the history of the woman who lies buried in Ventnor Churchyard. End of chapter 27、Chapter、28 of Lady Audley's Secret This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 
For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 28 Hidden in the Grave. Upon his return from Wildernsea, Robert Audley found a letter from his cousin Alicia awaiting him at his chambers. Papa is much better, the young lady wrote, and is very anxious to have you at the court. For some inexplicable reason, my stepmother has taken it into her head that your presence is extremely desirable, and worries me with her frivolous questions about your movements. So pray come without delay and set these people at rest. Your affectionate cousin, A. A. So my lady is anxious to know my movements, thought Robert Audley, as he sat brooding and smoking by his lonely fireside. She is anxious, and she questions her stepdaughter in that pretty, childlike manner which has such a bewitching air of innocent frivolity. Poor little creature! Poor, unhappy little golden-haired sinner! The battle between us seems terribly unfair. Why doesn't she run away while there is still time? I have given her fair warning. I have shown her my cards, and worked openly enough in this business, heaven knows. Why doesn't she run away? He repeated this question again and again, as he filled and emptied his meerschaum, surrounding himself with the blue vapour from his pipe, until he looked like some modern magician seated in his laboratory. "'Why doesn't she run away? I would bring no needless shame upon that house, of all other houses upon this wide earth. I would only do my duty to my missing friend, and to that brave and generous man who has pledged his faith to a worthless woman. Heaven knows I have no wish to punish.' Heaven knows I was never born to be the avenger of guilt or the persecutor of the guilty. I only wish to do my duty. I will give her one more warning, a full and fair one, and then— His thoughts wandered away to that gloomy prospect in which he saw no gleam of brightness to relieve the dull, black obscurity that encompassed the future, shutting in his pathway on every side, and spreading a dense curtain around and about him, which hope was powerless to penetrate. He was forever haunted by the vision of his uncle's anguish, forever tortured by the thought of that ruin and desolation, which, being brought about by his instrumentality, would seem in a manner his handiwork. But amid all and through all, Clara Tallboys, with an imperious gesture, beckoned him onward to her brother's unknown grave. "'Shall I go down to Southampton,' he thought, "'and endeavour to discover the history of the woman who died at Ventnor?' Shall I work underground, bribing the paltry assistance in that foul conspiracy, until I find my way to the thrice-guilty principle? No. Not till I have tried other means of discovering the truth. Shall I go to that miserable old man, and charge him with his share in the shameful trick which I believe to have been played upon my poor friend? No. I will not torture that terror-stricken wretch as I tortured him a few weeks ago. I will go straight to that arch-conspirator— and will tear away the beautiful veil under which she hides her wickedness, and will wring from her the secret of my friend's fate, and banish her forever from the house which her presence has polluted. He started early the next morning for Essex, and reached Audley before eleven o'clock. Early as it was, my lady was out. She had driven to Chelmsford upon a shopping expedition with her stepdaughter. She had several calls to make in the neighbourhood of the town, and was not likely to return until dinner-time. Sir Michael's health was very much improved, and he would come downstairs in the afternoon. Would Mr. Audley go to his uncle's room? No, Robert had no wish to meet that generous kinsman. What could he say to him? How could he smooth the way for the trouble that was to come? How soften the cruel blow of the great grief that was preparing for that noble untrusting heart? 
If I could forgive her the wrong done to my friend, Robert thought, I should still abhor her for the misery her guilt must bring upon the man who has believed in her. He told his uncle's servant that he would stroll into the village and return before dinner. He walked slowly away from the court, wandering across the meadows between his uncle's house and the village, purposeless and indifferent, with the great trouble and perplexity of his life stamped upon his face and reflected in his manner. "'I will go into the churchyard,' he thought, "'and stare at the tombstones. There is nothing I can do that will make me more gloomy than I am.' He was in those very meadows through which he had hurried from Audley Court to the station upon the September day in which George Talboys had disappeared. He looked at the pathway by which she had gone upon that day, and remembered his unaccustomed hurry, and the vague feeling of terror which had taken possession of him immediately upon losing sight of his friend. "'Why did that unaccountable terror seize upon me?' he thought. "'Why was it that I saw some strange mystery in my friend's disappearance? Was it a monition, or a monomania? What if I am wrong, after all? What if this chain of evidence which I have constructed link by link is woven out of my own folly?' What if this edifice of horror and suspicion is a mere collection of crotchets, the nervous fancies of a hypochondriacal bachelor? Mr. Harcourt Tallboys sees no meanings in the events out of which I have made myself a horrible mystery. I lay the separate links of the chain before him, and he cannot recognize their fitness. He is unable to put them together. Oh, my God! If it should be in myself all this time that the misery lies, if—he smiled bitterly and shook his head— I have the handwriting in my pocket-book, which is the evidence of the conspiracy," he thought. It remains for me to discover the darker half of my lady's secret. He avoided the village, still keeping to the meadows. The church lay a little way back from the straggling high street, and a rough wooden gate opened from the churchyard into a broad meadow, that was bordered by a running stream, and sloped down into a grassy valley dotted by groups of cattle. Robert slowly ascended the narrow hillside pathway leading up to the gate in the churchyard. The quiet dullness of the lonely landscape harmonized with his own gloom. The solitary figure of an old man hobbling toward a stile at the further end of the wide meadow was the only human creature visible upon the area over which the young barrister looked. The smoke slowly ascending from the scattered houses in the long high street was the only evidence of human life. The slow progress of the hands of the old clock in the church steeple was the only token by which a traveller could perceive that a sluggish course of rustic life had not come to a full stop in the village of Audley. Yes, there was one other sign. As Robert opened the gate of the churchyard, and strolled listlessly into the little enclosure, he became aware of the solemn music of an organ, audible through a half-open window in the steeple. He stopped and listened to the slow harmonies of a dreamy melody that sounded like an extempore composition of an accomplished player. Who would have believed that Audley Church could boast such an organ? thought Robert. When last I was here, the national schoolmaster used to accompany his children by a primitive performance of common chords. I didn't think the old organ had such music in it. He lingered at the gate, not caring to break the lazy spell woven about him by the monotonous melancholy of the organist's performance. The tones of the instrument, now swelling to their fullest power, now sinking to a low, whispering softness, floated toward him upon the misty winter atmosphere, and had a soothing influence, that seemed to comfort him in his trouble. He closed the gate softly, and crossed the little patch of gravel before the door of the church. The door had been left ajar, by the organist, perhaps. Robert Audley pushed it open, and walked into the square porch, from which a flight of narrow stone steps wound upward to the organ-loft and the belfry. Mr. Audley took off his hat, 
and opened the door between the porch and the body of the church. He stepped softly into the holy edifice, which had a damp, mouldy smell upon weekdays. He walked down the narrow aisle to the altar-rails, and from that point of observation took a survey of the church. The little gallery was exactly opposite to him, but the scanty green curtains before the organ were closely drawn, and he could not get a glimpse of the player. The music still rolled on. The organist had wandered into a melody of Mendelssohn's, a strain whose dreamy sadness went straight to Robert's heart. He loitered in the nooks and corners of the church, examining the dilapidated memorials of the well-nigh forgotten dead, and listening to the music. If my poor friend George Talboys had died in my arms, and I had buried him in this quiet church, in one corner of the vaults over which I tread to-day, how much anguish of mind, vacillation, and torment I might have escaped, thought Robert Audley, as he read the faded inscriptions upon tablets of discoloured marble. I should have known his fate. I should have known his fate. Ah, oh, how much there would have been in that! It is this miserable uncertainty, this horrible suspicion which has poisoned my very life. He looked at his watch. Half past one, he muttered. I shall have to wait four or five dreary hours before my lady comes home from her morning calls, her pretty visits of ceremony or friendliness. Good heaven! What an actress this woman is! What an arch-trickster! What an all-accomplished deceiver! But she shall play her pretty comedy no longer under my uncle's roof. I have diplomatized long enough. She has refused to accept an indirect warning. To-night I will speak plainly." The music of the organ ceased, and Robert heard the closing of the instrument. "'I'll have a look at this new organist,' he thought, who can afford to bury his talents at Audley, and play Mendelssohn's finest fugues for a stipend of sixteen pounds a year." He lingered in the porch, waiting for the organist to descend the awkward little staircase. In the weary trouble of his mind, and with the prospect of getting through the five hours in the best way he could, Mr. Audley was glad to cultivate any diversion of thought, however idle. He therefore freely indulged his curiosity about the new organist. The first person who appeared upon the steep stone steps was a boy in corduroy trousers and a dark linen smock-frock, who shambled down the stairs with a good deal of unnecessary clatter of his hobnailed shoes, and who was red in the face from the exertion of blowing the bellows of the old organ. Close behind this boy came a young lady, very plainly dressed in a black silk gown and a large grey shawl, who started and turned pale at sight of Mr. Audley. This young lady was Clara Talboys. Of all people in the world she was the last whom Robert either expected or wished to see. She had told him that she was going to pay a visit to some friends who lived in Essex, but the county is a wide one, and the village of Audley one of the most obscure and least frequented spots in the whole of its extent. That the sister of his lost friend should be here, here where she could watch his every action, and from those actions deduce the secret workings of his mind, tracing his doubts home to their object, made a complication of all his difficulties that he could never have anticipated. It brought him back to that consciousness of his own helplessness, in which he had exclaimed, "'A hand that is stronger than my own is beckoning me onward, on the dark road that leads to my lost friend's unknown grave.'" Clara Talboys was the first to speak. "'You are surprised to see me here, Mr. Audley.' she said. "'Very much surprised.' "'I told you that I was coming to Essex. I left home day before yesterday. I was leaving home when I received your telegraphic message. The friend with whom I am staying is Mrs. Martin, the wife of the new rector of Mount Stanning. 
I came down this morning to see the village and the church, and as Mrs. Martin had to pay a visit to the school with the curate and his wife, I stopped here and amused myself by trying the old organ. I was not aware till I came here that there was a village called Audley. The place takes its name from your family, I suppose. I believe so, Robert answered, wondering at the lady's calmness, in contradistinction to his own embarrassment. I have a vague recollection of hearing the story of some ancestor who was called Audley of Audley in the reign of Edward the Fourth. The tomb inside the rails near the altar belongs to one of the knights of Audley, but I have never taken the trouble to remember his achievements. Are you going to wait here for your friends, Miss Tallboys? Yes, they are to return here for me after they have finished their rounds. And you go back to Mount Stanning with them this afternoon? Yes. Robert stood with his hat in his hand, looking absently out at the tombstones and the low wall of the churchyard. Clara Tallboys watched his pale face, haggard under the deepening shadow that had rested upon it for so long. "'You have been ill since I last saw you, Mr. Audley,' she said, in a low voice, that had the same melodious sadness as the notes of the old organ under her touch. "'No, I have not been ill. I have been only harassed, wearied by a hundred doubts and perplexities.' He was thinking as he spoke to her. "'How much does she guess? How much does she suspect?' He had told the story of George's disappearance and of his own suspicions, suppressing only the names of those concerned in the mystery. But what if this girl should fathom this slender disguise, and discover for herself that which he had chosen to withhold? Her grave eyes were fixed upon his face, and he knew that she was trying to read the innermost secrets of his mind. "'What am I in her hands?' he thought. What am I in the hands of this woman, who has my lost friend's face in the manner of Pallas Athena? She reads my pitiful, vacillating soul, and plucks the thoughts out of my heart with the magic of her solemn brown eyes. How unequal the fight must be between us! And how can I ever hope to conquer against the strength of her beauty and her wisdom?" Mr. Audley was clearing his throat preparatory to bidding this beautiful companion good-morning, and making his escape from the thraldom of her presence into the lonely meadow outside the churchyard, when Clara Tallboys arrested him by speaking upon that very subject, which he was most anxious to avoid. "'You promised to write to me, Mr. Audley,' she said, "'if you made any discovery which carried you nearer to the mystery of my brother's disappearance. You have not written to me, and I imagine, therefore, that you have discovered nothing.' Robert Audley was silent for some moments. How could he answer this direct question? "'The chain of circumstantial evidence which unites the mystery of your brother's fate with the person whom I suspect,' he said, after a pause, "'is formed of very slight links. I think that I have added another link in that chain since I saw you in Dorsetshire.' "'And you refuse to tell me what it is that you have discovered?' "'Only until I have discovered more.' I thought from your message that you were going to Wildernsea. I have been there. Indeed. It was there that you made some discovery, then? It was, answered Robert. You must remember, Miss Tallboys, that the sole ground upon which my suspicions rest is the identity of two individuals who have no apparent connection, the identity of a person who is supposed to be dead, with one who is living. The conspiracy of which I believe your brother to have been the victim hinges upon this. If his wife, Helen Tallboys, died when the papers recorded her death, if the woman who lies buried in Ventnor Churchyard was indeed the woman whose name is inscribed on the headstone of the grave, I have no case. I have no clue to the mystery of your brother's fate. I am about to put this to the test. 
I believe that I am now in a position to play a bold game, and I believe that I shall soon arrive at the truth." He spoke in a low voice, and with a solemn emphasis that betrayed the intensity of his feeling. Miss Talboy stretched out her ungloved hand and laid it in his own. The cold touch of that slender hand sent a shivering thrill through his frame. "'You will not suffer my brother's fate to remain a mystery, Mr. Audley,' she said quietly. "'I know that you will do your duty to your friend.' The rector's wife and her two companions entered the churchyard as Clara Tallboy said this. Robert Audley pressed the hand that rested in his own, and raised it to his lips. "'I am a lazy, good-for-nothing fellow, Miss Tallboys,' he said. "'But if I could restore your brother George to life and happiness, I should care very little for any sacrifice of my own feeling. Fear that the most I can do is to fathom the secret of his fate, and in doing that I must sacrifice those who are dearer to me than myself.' He put on his hat, and hurried through the gateway leading into the field as Mrs. Martin came up to the porch. "'Who is that handsome young man I caught tête-à-tête with you, Clara?' she asked, laughing. "'He is Mr. Audley, a friend of my poor brother's.' "'Indeed! He is some relation of Sir Michael Audley, I suppose.' "'Sir Michael Audley?' "'Yes, my dear, the most important personage in the parish of Audley.' But we'll call at the court in a day or two, and you shall see the baronet and his pretty young wife." "'His young wife,' replied Clara Tallboys, looking earnestly at her friend. "'Has Sir Michael Audley lately married, then?' "'Yes. He was a widower for sixteen years, and married a penniless young governess about a year and a half ago. The story is quite romantic, and Lady Audley is considered the belle of the county.' But come, my dear Clara, the pony is tired of waiting for us, and we've a long drive before dinner." Clara Tallboys took her seat in the little basket carriage which was waiting at the principal gate of the churchyard, in the care of the boy who had blown the organ bellows. Mrs. Martin shook the reins, and the sturdy chestnut cob trotted off in the direction of Mount Stanning. "'Will you tell me more about this Lady Audley, Fanny?' Miss Tallboys said, after a long pause. "'I want to know all about her.' Have you heard her maiden name?" "'Yes. She was a Miss Graham.' "'And she is very pretty?' "'Yes. Very, very pretty. Rather a childish beauty, though, with large, clear blue eyes and pale golden ringlets that fall in a feathery shower over her throat and shoulders." Clara Tallboys was silent. She did not ask any further questions about my lady. She was thinking of a passage in that letter which George had written to her during his honeymoon a passage in which he said, "'My childish little wife is watching me as I write this. Ah, how I wish you could see her, Clara! Her eyes are as blue and as clear as the skies on a bright summer's day, and her hair falls about her face like the pale golden halo you see round the head of a Madonna in an Italian picture.'" End of chapter 28 Chapter Twenty Nine of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Twenty Nine. In the Lime Walk. 
Robert Audley was loitering upon the broad grass-plat in front of the court as the carriage containing my lady and Alicia drove under the archway, and drew up at the low turret door. Mr. Audley presented himself in time to hand the ladies out of the vehicle. My lady looked very pretty in a delicate blue bonnet and the sables which her nephew had bought for her at St. Petersburg. She seemed very well pleased to see Robert, and smiled most bewitchingly as she gave him her exquisitely gloved little hand. "'So you have come back to us, Truant,' she said, laughing. "'And now that you have returned, we shall keep you prisoner. We won't let him run away again, will we, Alicia?' Miss Audley gave her head a scornful toss that shook the heavy curls under her cavalier hat. "'I have nothing to do with the movements of so erratic an individual,' she said. "'Since Robert Audley has taken it into his head to conduct himself like some ghost-haunted hero in a German story, I have given up attempting to understand him.' Mr. Audley looked at his cousin with an expression of serio-comic perplexity. "'She's a nice girl,' he thought, "'but she's a nuisance. I don't know how it is, but she seems more a nuisance than she used to be.' He pulled his moustaches reflectively as he considered this question. His mind wandered away for a few moments from the great trouble of his life to dwell upon this minor perplexity. "'She's a dear girl,' he thought, "'a generous-hearted, bouncing, noble English lassie, and yet—' He lost himself in a quagmire of doubt and difficulty. There was some hitch in his mind which he could not understand, some change in himself, beyond the change made in him by his anxiety about George Tallboys, which mystified and bewildered him. "'And pray, where have you been wandering during the last day or two, Mr. Audley?' asked my lady, as she lingered with her stepdaughter upon the threshold of the turret door, waiting until Robert should be pleased to stand aside and allow them to pass. The young man started as she asked this question, and looked up at her suddenly. Something in the aspect of her bright young beauty, something in the childish innocence of her expression, seemed to smite him to the heart, and his face grew ghastly pale as he looked at her. "'I have been in Yorkshire,' he said, "'at the little watering-place where my poor friend George Tallboys lived at the time of his marriage.' The white change in my lady's face was the only sign of her having heard these words. She smiled, a faint, sickly smile, and tried to pass her husband's nephew. "'I must dress for dinner,' she said. "'I am going to a dinner-party, Mr. Audley. Please let me go in.' "'I must ask you to spare me half an hour, Lady Audley,' Robert answered in a low voice. "'I came down to Essex on purpose to speak to you.' "'What about?' asked my lady. She had recovered herself from any shock which she might have sustained a few moments before, and it was in her usual manner that she asked this question. Her face expressed the mingled bewilderment and curiosity of a puzzled child, rather than the serious surprise of a woman. "'What can you want to talk to me about, Mr. Audley?' she repeated. "'I will tell you when we are alone,' Robert said, glancing at his cousin, who stood a little way behind my lady, watching this confidential little dialogue. "'He is in love with my stepmother's wax-doll beauty,' thought Alicia. "'And it is for her sake he has become such a disconsolate object. "'He's just the sort of person to fall in love with his aunt.' Miss Audley walked away to the grass-plat, turning her back upon Robert and my lady. "'The absurd creature turned as white as a sheet when he saw her,' she thought. "'So he can be in love, after all.' That slow lump of torpidity he calls his heart can beat, I suppose, once in a quarter of a century. But it seems that nothing but a blue-eyed wax-doll can set it going. 
I should have given him up long ago if I'd known that his idea of beauty was to be found in a toy-shop." Poor Alicia crossed the grass-plat and disappeared upon the opposite side of the quadrangle, where there was a Gothic gate that communicated with the stables. I am sorry to say that Sir Michael Audley's daughter went to seek consolation from her dog Caesar and her chestnut mare Atalanta, whose loose box the young lady was in the habit of visiting every day. "'Will you come into the lime-walk, Lady Audley?' said Robert, as his cousin left the garden. "'I wish to talk to you without fear of interruption or observation. I think we could choose no safer place than that. Will you come there with me?' "'If you please,' answered my lady. Mr. Audley could see that she was trembling, and that she glanced from side to side as if looking for some outlet by which she might escape him. "'You are shivering, Lady Audley,' he said. "'Yes. I am very cold. I would rather speak to you some other day, please. Let it be to-morrow, if you will. I have to dress for dinner, and I want to see Sir Michael. I have not seen him since ten o'clock this morning. Please let it be to-morrow." There was a painful piteousness in her tone. Heaven knows how painful to Robert's heart. Heaven knows what horrible images arose in his mind as he looked down at that fair young face, and thought of the task that lay before him. "'I must speak to you, Lady Audley,' he said. "'If I am cruel, it is you who have made me cruel. You might have escaped this ordeal. You might have avoided me. I gave you fair warning. But you have chosen to defy me, and it is your own folly which is to blame if I no longer spare you. Come with me. I tell you again, I must speak to you.' There was a cold determination in his tone which silenced my lady's objections. She followed him submissively to the little iron gate which communicated with the long garden behind the house, the garden in which a little rustic wooden bridge led across the quiet fish-pond into the lime-walk. The early winter twilight was closing in, and the intricate tracery of the leafless branches that overarched the lonely pathway looked black against the cold grey of the evening sky. The lime-walk seemed like some cloister in this uncertain light. "'Why do you bring me to this horrible place, to frighten me out of my poor wits?' cried my lady peevishly. "'You ought to know how nervous I am.' "'You are nervous, my lady?' "'Yes, dreadfully nervous. I am worth a fortune to poor Mr. Dawson. He is always sending me camphor, and sal volatile, and red lavender, and all kinds of abominable mixtures, but he can't cure me.' "'Do you remember what Macbeth tells his physician, my lady?' said Robert gravely. Mr. Dawson may be very much more clever than the Scottish leech, but I doubt if even he can minister to the mind that is diseased." "'Who said that my mind was diseased?' exclaimed Lady Audley. "'I say so, my lady,' answered Robert. "'You tell me that you are nervous, and that all the medicines your doctor can prescribe are only so much physic that might as well be thrown to the dogs. Let me be the physician to strike to the root of your malady, Lady Audley. Heaven knows that I wish to be merciful, that I would spare you as far as it is in my power to spare you in doing justice to others. But justice must be done. Shall I tell you why you are nervous in this house, my lady?" "'If you can,' she answered with a little laugh. "'Because for you this house is haunted.' "'Haunted?' "'Yes. Haunted by the ghost of George Tallboys.' Robert Audley heard my lady's quickened breathing. He fancied he could almost hear the loud beating of her heart as she walked by his side, shivering now and then, and with her sable cloak wrapped tightly around her. "'What do you mean?' 
she cried suddenly after a pause of some moments. "'Why do you torment me about this George Tallboys, who happens to have taken it into his head to keep out of your way for a few months? Are you going mad, Mr. Audley? And do you select me as the victim of your monomania? What is George Tallboys to me that you should worry me about him?' "'He was a stranger to you, my lady, was he not?' "'Of course,' answered Lady Audley. "'What should he be but a stranger?' "'Shall I tell you the story of my friend's disappearance as I read that story, my lady?' asked Robert. "'No,' cried Lady Audley. "'I wish to know nothing of your friend. If he is dead, I am sorry for him. If he lives, I have no wish either to see him or to hear of him. Let me go in to see my husband, if you please, Mr. Audley, unless you wish to detain me in this gloomy place until I catch my death of cold.' "'I wish to detain you until you have heard what I have to say, Lady Audley.' answered Robert resolutely. "'I will detain you no longer than is necessary, and when you have heard me you shall take your own course of action.' "'Very well, then. Pray lose no time in saying what you have to say,' replied my lady carelessly. "'I promise you to attend very patiently.' "'When my friend George Talboys returned to England,' Robert began gravely, "'the thought which was uppermost in his mind was the thought of his wife.' "'Whom he had deserted.' said my lady quickly. "'At least,' she added more deliberately, "'I remember you telling us something to that effect when you'd first told us your friend's story.' Robert Audley did not notice this observation. "'The thought that was uppermost in his mind was the thought of his wife,' he repeated. "'His fairest hope in the future was the hope of making her happy, and lavishing upon her the pittance which he had won by the force of his own strong arm in the gold-fields of Australia. I saw him within a few hours of his reaching England, and I was a witness to the joyful pride with which he looked forward to his reunion with his wife. I was also a witness to the blow which struck him to the very heart, which changed him from the man he had been, to a creature as unlike that former self as one human being can be unlike another. The blow which made that cruel change was the announcement of his wife's death in the Times newspaper. I now believe that announcement was a black and bitter lie." "'Indeed,' said my lady. And what reason could any one have for announcing the death of Mrs. Tallboys, if Mrs. Tallboys had been alive? The lady herself might have had a reason, Robert answered quietly. What reason? How if she had taken advantage of George's absence to win a richer husband? How if she had married again, and wished to throw my poor friend off the scent by this false announcement? Lady Audley shrugged her shoulders. "'Your suppositions are rather ridiculous, Mr. Audley,' she said. "'It is to be hoped that you have some reasonable grounds for them.' "'I have examined a file of each of the newspapers published in Chelmsford and Colchester,' continued Robert, without replying to my lady's last observation. "'And I find in one of the Colchester papers, dated July the 2nd, 1850, a brief paragraph among numerous miscellaneous scraps of information copied from other newspapers, to the effect that a Mr. George Tallboys, an English gentleman, had arrived at Sydney from the gold-fields, carrying with him nuggets and gold-dust to the amount of twenty thousand pounds, and that he had realized his property, and sailed for Liverpool in the fast-sailing clipper Argus. This is a very small fact, of course, Lady Audley, but it is enough to prove that any person residing in Essex in the July of the year fifty-seven was likely to become aware of George Tallboys's return from Australia. Do you follow me? Not very clearly, said my lady. What have the Essex papers to do with the death of Mrs. Tallboys? 
We will come to that by and by, Lady Audley. I say that I believe the announcement in the Times to have been a false announcement, and a part of the conspiracy which was carried out by Helen Talboys and Lieutenant Malden against my poor friend. A conspiracy? Yes, a conspiracy concocted by an artful woman, who had speculated upon the chances of her husband's death, and had secured a splendid position at the risk of committing a crime. A bold woman, my lady, who thought to play her comedy out to the end without fear of detection. A wicked woman, who did not care what misery she might inflict upon the honest heart of the man she betrayed. But a foolish woman, who looked at life as a game of chance, in which the best player was likely to hold the winning cards, forgetting that there is a providence above the pitiful speculators, and that wicked secrets are never permitted to remain long hidden. If this woman of whom I speak had never been guilty of any blacker sin than the publication of that lying announcement in the Times newspaper, I should still hold her as the most detestable and despicable of her sex, the most pitiless and calculating of human creatures. That cruel lie was a base and cowardly blow in the dark. It was the treacherous dagger-thrust of an infamous assassin. "'But how do you know that the announcement was a false one?' asked my lady. "'You told us that you had been to Ventnor with Mr. Tallboys to see his wife's grave. Who was it who died at Ventnor if it was not Mrs. Tallboys?' "'Ah, Lady Audley,' said Robert, "'that is a question which only two or three people can answer, and one or other of those persons shall answer it to me before long. I tell you, my lady, that I am determined to unravel the mystery of George Tallboys's death. Do you think I am to be put off by feminine prevarication, by womanly trickery?' No. Link by link I have put together the chain of evidence, which wants but a link here and there to be complete in its terrible strength. Do you think I will suffer myself to be baffled? Do you think I shall fail to discover those missing links? No, Lady Audley, I shall not fail, for I know where to look for them. There is a fair-haired woman at Southampton, a woman called Plowson, who has had some share in the secrets of the father of my friend's wife. I have an idea that she can help me to discover the history of the woman who lies buried in Ventnor churchyard, and I will spare no trouble in making that discovery, unless—unless what? asked my lady eagerly. Unless the woman I wish to save from degradation and punishment accepts the mercy I offer her, and takes warning while there is still time. My lady shrugged her graceful shoulders, and flashed bright defiance out of her blue eyes. She would be a very foolish woman if she suffered herself to be influenced by any such absurdity," she said. "'You are hypochondriacal, Mr. Audley, and you must take camphor, or red lavender, or sal volatile. What can be more ridiculous than this idea which you have taken into your head? You lose your friend George Tallboys in rather a mysterious manner—that is to say, that gentleman chooses to leave England without giving you due notice. What of that? You confess that he became an altered man after his wife's death. He grew eccentric and misanthropical. He affected an utter indifference as to what became of him. What more likely, then, that he grew tired of the monotony of civilized life, and ran away to those savage gold-fields to find a distraction for his grief? It is rather a romantic story, but by no means an uncommon one. But you are not satisfied with this simple interpretation of your friend's disappearance. And you build up some absurd theory of a conspiracy which has no existence except in your own overheated brain. Helen Talboys is dead. The Times newspaper declares that she is dead. Her own father tells you she is dead. The headstone of the grave in Ventnor churchyard bears record of her death. By what right? 
cried my lady, her voice rising to that shrill and piercing tone peculiar to her when affected by any intense agitation. "'By what right, Mr. Audley, do you come to me, and torment me about George Tallboys? By what right do you dare to say that his wife is still alive?' "'By the right of circumstantial evidence, Lady Audley,' answered Robert. "'By the right of that circumstantial evidence which will sometimes fix the guilt of a man's murder upon that person who, on the first hearing of the case—' seems of all other men the most unlikely to be guilty. What circumstantial evidence? The evidence of time and place. The evidence of handwriting. When Helen Tallboys left her father's at Wildernsea, she left a letter behind her. A letter in which she declared that she was weary of her old life, and that she wished to seek a new home and a new fortune. That letter is in my possession. Indeed. Shall I tell you whose handwriting resembles that of Helen Tallboys so closely, that the most dexterous expert could perceive no distinction between the two? A resemblance between the handwriting of two women is no very uncommon circumstance nowadays," replied my lady carelessly. I could show you the calligraphies of half a dozen female correspondents, and defy you to discover any great difference in them. But what if the handwriting is a very uncommon one, presenting marked peculiarities by which it may be recognized among a hundred? "'Why, in that case, the coincidence is rather curious,' answered my lady. "'But it is nothing more than a coincidence. You cannot deny the fact of Helen Tallboy's death on the ground that her handwriting resembles that of some surviving person. "'But if a series of such coincidences lead up to the same point,' said Robert, "'Helen Tallboy's left her father's house, according to the declaration in her own handwriting, because she was weary of her old life, and wished to begin a new one. Do you know what I infer from this?' My lady shrugged her shoulders. "'I have not the least idea,' she said. "'And as you have detained me in this gloomy place nearly half an hour, I must beg that you will release me, and let me go and dress for dinner.' "'No, Lady Audley,' answered Robert, with a cold sternness that was so strange to him as to transform him into another creature, a pitiless embodiment of justice, a cruel instrument of retribution. "'No, Lady Audley,' he repeated. I have told you that womanly prevarication will not help you. I tell you now that defiance will not serve you. I have dealt fairly with you, and have given you fair warning. I gave you indirect notice of your danger two months ago." "'What do you mean?' asked my lady suddenly. "'You did not choose to take that warning, Lady Audley,' pursued Robert. "'And the time has come in which I must speak very plainly to you.' Do you think the gifts which you have played against fortune are to hold you exempt from retribution? No, my lady. Your youth and beauty, your grace and refinement, only make the horrible secret of your life more horrible. I tell you that the evidence against you wants only one link to be strong enough for your condemnation, and that link shall be added. Helen Tallboys never returned to her father's house. When she deserted that poor old father, she went away from his humble shelter with the declared intention of washing her hands of that old life. What do people generally do when they wish to begin a new existence, to start for a second time in the race of life, free from the encumbrances that had fettered their first journey? They change their names, Lady Audley. Helen Tallboys deserted her infant son. She went away from Wildernsea with the predetermination of sinking her identity. She disappeared as Helen Tallboys upon the 16th of August, 1854 and upon the seventeenth of that month she reappeared as Lucy Graham, the friendless girl who undertook a profitless duty in consideration of a home in which she was asked no questions. "'You are mad, Mr. Audley,' 
cried my lady. "'You are mad, and my husband shall protect me from your insolence. What if this Helen Tallboys ran away from her home upon one day, and I entered my employer's house upon the next? What does that prove?' "'By itself very little,' replied Robert Audley. "'But with the help of other evidence—' "'What evidence?' "'The evidence of two labels, pasted one over the other, upon a box left by you in possession of Mrs. Vincent, the upper label bearing the name of Miss Graham, the lower that of Mrs. George Tallboys.' My lady was silent. Robert Audley could not see her face in the dusk, but he could see that her two small hands were clasped convulsively over her heart, and he knew that the shot had gone home to its mark. "'God help her, poor wretched creature,' he thought. "'She knows now that she is lost. I wonder if the judges of the land feel as I do now when they put on the black cap and pass sentence of death upon some poor shivering wretch who has never done them any wrong. Do they feel a heroic fervour of virtuous indignation?' or do they suffer this dull anguish which gnaws my vitals as I talk to this helpless woman?" He walked by my lady's side, silently, for some minutes. They had been pacing up and down the dim avenue, and they were now drawing near the leafless shrubbery at one end of the lime-walk, the shrubbery in which the ruined well sheltered its unheeded decay among the tangled masses of briary underwood. A winding pathway, neglected and half-choked with weeds, led toward this well. Robert left the lime-walk and struck into this pathway. There was more light in the shrubbery than in the avenue, and Mr. Audley wished to see my lady's face. He did not speak until they reached the patch of rank grass beside the well. The massive brickwork had fallen away here and there, and loose fragments of masonry lay buried amidst weeds and briars. The heavy posts which had supported the wooden roller still remained, but the iron spindle had been dragged from its socket, and lay a few paces from the well, rusty, discoloured, and forgotten. Robert Audley leaned against one of the moss-grown posts, and looked down at my lady's face, very pale in the chill winter twilight. The moon had newly risen, a feebly luminous crescent in the grey heavens, and a faint, ghostly light mingled with the misty shadows of the declining day. My lady's face seemed like that face which Robert Audley had seen in his dreams, looking out of the white foam flakes on the green sea waves and luring his uncle to destruction. "'Those two labels are in my possession, Lady Audley,' he resumed. I took them from the box left by you at Crescent Villas. I took them in the presence of Mrs. Vincent and Miss Tonks. Have you any proofs to offer against this evidence? You say to me, I am Lucy Graham, and I have nothing whatever to do with Helen Tallboys. In that case you will produce witnesses who will declare your antecedents. Where had you been living prior to your appearance at Crescent Villas? You must have friends, relations, connections, who can come forward to prove as much as this for you. If you were the most desolate creature upon this earth, you would be able to point to some one who could identify you with the past." "'Yes,' cried my lady. "'If I were placed in a criminal dock, I could, no doubt, bring forward witnesses to refute your absurd accusation. But I am not in a criminal dock, Mr. Audley, and I do not choose to do anything but laugh at your ridiculous folly. I tell you that you are mad. If you please to say that Helen Tallboys is not dead, and that I am Helen Tallboys, you may do so. If you choose to go wandering about in the places in which I have lived, and to the places in which this Mrs. Tallboys has lived, you must follow the bent of your own inclination. But I would warn you, that such fancies have sometimes conducted people, as apparently sane as yourself, to the lifelong imprisonment of a private lunatic asylum." Robert Audley started and recoiled a few paces among the weeds and brushwood as my lady said this. 
She would be capable of any new crime to shield her from the consequences of the old one, he thought. She would be capable of using her influence with my uncle to place me in a madhouse. I do not say that Robert Audley was a coward, but I will admit that a shiver of horror, something akin to fear, chilled him to the heart as he remembered the horrible things that have been done by women, since that day upon which Eve was created to be Adam's companion and helpmeet in the Garden of Eden. What if this woman's hellish power of dissimulation should be stronger than the truth, and crush him? She had not spared George Tallboys when he stood in her way, and menaced her with a certain peril. Would she spare him who threatened her with a far greater danger? Are women merciful, or loving, or kind in proportion to their beauty and grace? Was there not a certain Monsieur Mazère de Latude, who had the bad fortune to offend the all-accomplished Madame de Pompadour, who expiated his youthful indiscretion by a life-long imprisonment, who twice escaped from prison, to be twice cast back into captivity, who, trusting in the tardy generosity of his beautiful foe, betrayed himself to an implacable fiend. Robert Audley looked at the pale face of the woman standing by his side, that fair and beautiful face, illumined by starry blue eyes, that had a strange and surely a dangerous light in them, and remembered a hundred stories of womanly perfidy, shuddered as he thought how unequal the struggle might be between himself and his uncle's wife. "'I have shown her my cards,' he thought, "'but she has kept hers hidden from me. The mask that she wears is not to be plucked away. My uncle would rather think me mad than believe her guilty.' The pale face of Clara Tallboys, that grave and earnest face, so different in its character to my lady's fragile beauty, arose before him. "'What a coward I am to think of myself or my own danger,' he thought. "'The more I see of this woman, the more reason I have to dread her influence upon others, the more reason to wish her far away from this house.' He looked about him in the dusky obscurity. The lonely garden was as quiet as some solitary graveyard, walled in and hidden away from the world of the living. It was somewhere in this garden that she met George Tallboys upon the day of his disappearance, he thought. I wonder where it was they met. I wonder where it was that he looked into her cruel face, and taxed her with her falsehood. My lady, with her little hand resting lightly upon the opposite post to that against which Robert leaned, toyed with her pretty foot among the long weeds, but kept a furtive watch upon her enemy's face. "'It is to be a duel to the death, then, my lady.' said Robert Audley, solemnly. "'You refuse to accept my warning. You refuse to run away and repent of your wickedness in some foreign place, far from the generous gentleman you have deceived and fooled by your false witcheries. You choose to remain here and defy me.' "'I do,' answered Lady Audley, lifting her head and looking full at the young barrister. "'It is no fault of mine if my husband's nephew goes mad, and chooses me for the victim of his monomania.' "'So be it, then, my lady,' answered Robert. "'My friend George Tallboys was last seen entering these gardens by the little iron gate by which we came in to-night. He was last heard inquiring for you. He was seen to enter these gardens, but he was never seen to leave them. I believe that he met his death within the boundary of these grounds, and that his body lies hidden below some quiet water, or in some forgotten corner of this place. I will have such a search made as shall level that house to the earth.' and root up every tree in these gardens, rather than I will fail in finding the grave of my murdered friend." Lady Audley uttered a long, low, wailing cry, and threw up her arms above her head with a wild gesture of despair. But she made no answer to the ghastly charge of her accuser. Her arms dropped slowly, 
and she stood staring at Robert Audley, her white face gleaming through the dusk, her blue eyes glittering and dilated. "'You shall never live to do this,' she said. "'I will kill you first. Why have you tormented me so? Why could you not let me alone? What harm had I ever done you that you should make yourself my persecutor, and dog my steps, and watch my looks, and play the spy upon me? Do you want to drive me mad?' Do you know what it is to wrestle with a mad woman? No, cried my lady with a laugh. You do not, or you would never. She stopped abruptly, and drew herself suddenly to her fullest height. It was the same action which Robert had seen in the old half-drunken lieutenant, and it had that same dignity, the sublimity of extreme misery. Go away, Mr. Audley, she said. You are mad. I tell you, you are mad. "'I am going, my lady,' answered Robert quietly. "'I would have condoned your crimes out of pity to your wretchedness. You have refused to accept my mercy. I wish to have pity upon the living. I shall henceforth only remember my duty to the dead.' He walked away from the lonely well under the shadow of the limes. My lady followed him slowly down that long gloomy avenue, and across the rustic bridge to the iron gate. As he passed through the gate, Alicia came out of a little half-glass door that opened from an oak-panelled breakfast-room at one angle of the house, and met her cousin upon the threshold of the gateway. "'I have been looking for you everywhere, Robert,' she said. "'Papa has come down to the library, and he will be glad to see you.' The young man started at the sound of his cousin's fresh young voice. "'Good heaven!' he thought. "'Can these two women be of the same clay?' "'Can this frank, generous-hearted girl, who cannot conceal any impulse of her innocent nature, be of the same flesh and blood as that wretched creature whose shadow falls upon the path beside me." He looked from his cousin to Lady Audley, who stood near the gateway, waiting for him to stand aside and let her pass him. "'I don't know what has come to your cousin, my dear Alicia,' said my lady. "'He is so absent-minded and eccentric as to be quite beyond my comprehension.' "'Indeed!' exclaimed Miss Audley. "'And yet I should imagine, from the length of your tete-a-tete, that you had made some effort to understand him.' "'Oh, yes,' said Robert quietly. "'My lady and I understand each other very well. "'But as it is growing late, I will wish you good evening, ladies. "'I shall sleep to-night at Mount Stanning, "'as I have some business to attend to up there, "'and I will come down to see my uncle to-morrow.' "'What, Robert?' cried Alicia. "'You surely won't go away without seeing Papa?' "'Yes, my dear,' answered the young man. "'I am a little disturbed by some disagreeable business "'in which I am very much concerned.' and I would rather not see my uncle. Good-night, Alicia. I will come or write to-morrow." He pressed his cousin's hand, bowed to Lady Audley, and walked away under the black shadows of the archway, and out into the quiet avenue beyond the court. My lady and Alicia stood watching him until he was out of sight. "'What in goodness' name is the matter with my cousin Robert?' exclaimed Miss Audley impatiently as the barrister disappeared. "'What does he mean by these absurd goings-on?' some disagreeable business that disturbs him indeed. I suppose the unhappy creature has had a brief forced upon him by some evil-starred attorney, and is sinking into a state of imbecility from a dim consciousness of his own incompetence." "'Have you ever studied your cousin's character, Alicia?' asked my lady very seriously after a pause. "'Studied his character? No, Lady Audley, why should I study his character?' said Alicia. There is very little study required to convince anybody that he is a lazy, selfish sybarite, who cares for nothing in the world except his own ease and comfort. 
"'But you have never thought him eccentric?' "'Eccentric?' repeated Alicia, pursing up her red lips and shrugging up her shoulders. "'Well, yes. I believe that is the excuse generally made for such people. I suppose Bob is eccentric.' "'I have never heard you speak of his father and mother,' said my lady thoughtfully. "'Do you remember them?' "'I never saw his mother. She was a Miss Dalrymple, a very dashing girl, who ran away with my uncle, and lost a very handsome fortune in consequence. She died at Nice when poor Bob was five years old.' "'And did you ever hear anything particular about her?' "'How do you mean particular?' asked Alicia. "'Did you ever hear that she was eccentric—what people call odd?' "'Oh, no,' said Alicia, laughing. My aunt was a very reasonable woman, I believe, though she did marry for love. But you must remember that she died before I was born, and I have not, therefore, felt very much curiosity about her. "'But you recollect your uncle, I suppose?' "'My uncle Robert,' said Alicia. "'Oh, yes, I remember him very well, indeed.' "'Was he eccentric? I mean to say, peculiar in his habits, like her cousin.' "'Yes, I believe Robert inherits all his absurdities from his father.' My uncle expressed the same indifference for his fellow-creatures as my cousin, but as he was a good husband, an affectionate father, and a kind master, nobody ever challenged his opinions. But he was eccentric. Yes, I suppose he was generally thought a little eccentric. Ah, said my lady gravely, I thought as much. Do you know, Alicia, madness is more often transmitted from father to daughter, and from mother to daughter, than from mother to son. Your cousin, Robert Audley, is a very handsome young man, and I believe a very good-hearted young man, but he must be watched, Alicia, for he is mad." "'Mad!' cried Miss Audley indignantly. "'You are dreaming, my lady, or—or you are trying to frighten me,' added the young lady with considerable alarm. "'I only wish to put you under a guard, Alicia,' answered my lady. "'Mr. Audley may be, as you say, merely eccentric. But he has talked to me this evening in a manner that has filled me with absolute terror, and I believe that he is going mad. I shall speak very seriously to Sir Michael this very night." "'Speak to Papa!' exclaimed Alicia. "'You surely won't distress Papa by suggesting such a possibility.' "'I shall only put him on his guard, my dear Alicia.' "'But he'll never believe you,' said Miss Audley. "'He will laugh at such an idea.' "'No, Alicia. He will believe anything that I tell him answered my lady, with a quiet smile. End of chapter 29 Chapter 30 of Lady Audley's Secret This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Thirty. Preparing the Ground. Lady Audley went from the garden to the library, a pleasant oak-panelled, homely apartment in which Sir Michael liked to sit reading or writing, or arranging the business of his estate with his steward, a stalwart countryman, half agriculturalist, half lawyer, who rented a small farm a few miles from the court. The baronet was seated in a capacious easy-chair near the hearth. The bright blaze of the fire rose and fell, flashing now upon the polished carvings of the black oak bookcase, 
now upon the gold and scarlet bindings of the books, sometimes glimmering upon the Athenian helmet of a marble palace, sometimes lighting up the forehead of Sir Robert Peel. The lamp upon the reading-table had not yet been lighted, and Sir Michael sat in the firelight, waiting for the coming of his young wife. It is impossible for me ever to tell the purity of his generous love. It is impossible to describe that affection which was as tender as the love of a young mother for her first-born, as brave and chivalrous as the heroic passion of a Bayard for his liege mistress. The door opened while he was thinking of this fondly loved wife, and looking up, the baronet saw the slender form standing in the doorway. "'Why, my darling!' he exclaimed, as my lady closed the door behind her and came toward his chair. "'I have been thinking of you and waiting for you an hour. Where have you been, and what have you been doing?' My lady, standing in the shadow rather than the light, paused a few moments before replying to this question. "'I have been to Chelmsford,' she said, "'shopping, and—' She hesitated, twisting her bonnet-strings in her thin white fingers, with an air of pretty embarrassment. "'And what, my dear?' asked the baronet. "'What have you been doing since you came from Chelmsford? I heard a carriage stop at the door an hour ago. It was yours, was it not?' "'Yes, I came home an hour ago.' answered my lady, with the same air of embarrassment. "'And what have you been doing since you came home?' Sir Michael Audley asked this question with a slightly reproachful accent. His young wife's presence made the sunshine of his life, and though he could not bear to chain her to his side, it grieved him to think that she could willingly remain unnecessarily absent from him, frittering away her time in some childish talk or frivolous occupation. "'What have you been doing since you came home, my dear?' he repeated. What has kept you so long away from me? I have been talking to Mr. Robert Audley. She still twisted her bonnet-string round and round her fingers. She still spoke with the same air of embarrassment. Robert! exclaimed the baronet. Is Robert here? He was here a little while ago. And is here still, I suppose? No. He has gone away. Gone away? cried Sir Michael. "'What do you mean, my darling?' "'I mean that your nephew came to the court this afternoon. Alicia and I found him idling about the gardens. He stayed here till about a quarter of an hour ago, talking to me, and then he hurried off without a word of explanation, except, indeed, some ridiculous excuse about business at Mount Stanning.' "'Business at Mount Stanning? Why, what business can he possibly have in that out-of-the-way place? He has gone to sleep at Mount Stanning, then, I suppose?' "'Yes. I think he said something to that effect.' "'Upon my word!' exclaimed the baronet. "'I think that boy is half mad.' My lady's face was so much in shadow, that Sir Michael Audley was unaware of the bright change that came over its sickly pallor, as he made this very commonplace observation. A triumphant smile illuminated Lucy Audley's countenance, a smile that plainly said, "'It is coming. It is coming. I can twist him which way I like.' I can put black before him, and if I say it is white, he will believe me." But Sir Michael Audley, in declaring that his nephew's wits were disordered, merely uttered that commonplace ejaculation which is well known to have very little meaning. The baronet had, it is true, no very great estimate of Robert's faculty for the business of this everyday life. He was in the habit of looking upon his nephew as a good-natured nonentity a man whose heart had been amply stocked by liberal nature with all the best things the generous goddess had to bestow, 
but whose brain had been somewhat overlooked in the distribution of intellectual gifts. Sir Michael Audley made that mistake which is very commonly made by easy-going, well-to-do observers, who have no occasion to look below the surface. He mistook laziness for incapacity. He thought, because his nephew was idle, he must necessarily be stupid. He concluded that if Robert did not distinguish himself, it was because he could not. He forgot the mute, inglorious Miltons, who die voiceless and inarticulate for want of that dogged perseverance, that blind courage, which the poet must possess before he can find a publisher. He forgot the Cromwells, who see the noble vessels of the State floundering upon a sea of confusion, and going down in a tempest of noisy bewilderment, and who are yet powerless to get at the helm, forbidden even to send out a lifeboat to the sinking ship. Surely it is a mistake to judge of what a man can do by that which he has done. The world's Valhalla is a close borough, and perhaps the greatest men may be those who perish silently far away from the sacred portal. Perhaps the purest and brightest spirits are those who shrink from the turmoil of the race-course, the tumult and confusion of the struggle. The game of life is something like the game of écarte, and it may be that the very best cards are sometimes left in the pack. My lady threw off her bonnet, and seated herself upon a velvet-covered footstool at Sir Michael's feet. There was nothing studied or affected in this girlish action. It was so natural to Lucy Audley to be childish, that no one would have wished to see her otherwise. It would have seemed as foolish to expect dignified reserve or womanly gravity from this amber-haired siren, as to wish for rich basses amid the clear treble of a skylark's song. She sat with her pale face turned away from the firelight, and with her hands locked together upon the arm of her husband's easy-chair. They were very restless, these slender white hands. My lady twisted the jewelled fingers in and out of each other as she talked to her husband. "'I wanted to come to you, you know, dear,' said she. "'I wanted to come to you directly I got home, but Mr. Audley insisted upon my stopping to talk to him.' "'But what about, my love?' asked the baronet. "'What could Robert have to say to you?' My lady did not answer this question. Her fair head dropped upon her husband's knee, her rippling yellow curls fell over her face. Sir Michael lifted that beautiful head with his strong hands, and raised my lady's face. The firelight shining on that pale face lit up the large, soft blue eyes, and showed them drowned in tears. "'Lucy! Lucy!' cried the baronet. "'What is the meaning of this? My love! my love! what has happened to distress you in this manner?' Lady Audley tried to speak but the words died inarticulately upon her trembling lips. A choking sensation in her throat seemed to strangle those false and plausible words, her only armour against her enemies. She could not speak. The agony she had endured silently in the dismal lime-walk had grown too strong for her, and she broke into a tempest of hysterical sobbing. It was no simulated grief that shook her slender frame, and tore at her like some ravenous beast that would have rent her piecemeal with its horrible strength. It was a storm of real anguish and terror, of remorse and misery. It was the one wild outcry in which the woman's feebler nature got the better of the siren's art. It was not thus that she had meant to fight her terrible duel with Robert Audley. Those were not the weapons which she had intended to use. But perhaps no artifice which she could have devised would have served her so well as this one outburst of natural grief. It shook her husband to the very soul. It bewildered and terrified him. It reduced the strong intellect of the man to helpless confusion and perplexity. It struck at the one weak point in a good man's nature. It appealed straight to Sir Michael Audley's affection for his wife. 
Ah, heaven help a strong man's tender weakness for the woman he loves. Heaven pity him when the guilty creature has deceived him, and comes with her tears and lamentations, to throw herself at his feet in self-abandonment and remorse, torturing him with the sight of her agony, rending his heart with her sobs, lacerating his breast with her groans, multiplying her sufferings into a great anguish for him to bear, multiplying them by twentyfold, multiplying them in a ratio of a brave man's capacity for endurance. Heaven forgive him, if maddened by that cruel agony, the balance wavers for a moment, and he is ready to forgive anything, ready to take this wretched one to the shelter of his breast, and to pardon that which the stern voice of manly honour urges must not be pardoned. Pity him! Pity him! The wife's worst remorse, when she stands without the threshold of the home she may never enter more, is not equal to the agony of the husband who closes the portal on that familiar and entreating face. The anguish of the mother who may never look again upon her children is less than the torment of the father who has to say to those little ones, My darlings, you are henceforth motherless. Sir Michael Audley rose from his chair, trembling with indignation, and ready to do immediate battle with the person who had caused his wife's grief. Lucy, he said, Lucy, I insist upon your telling me what and who has distressed you. I insist upon it. Whoever has annoyed you shall answer to me for your grief. Come, my love, tell me directly what it is. He seated himself and bent over the drooping figure at his feet, calming his own agitation and his desire to soothe his wife's distress. "'Tell me what it is, my dear,' he whispered tenderly. The sharp paroxysm had passed away, and my lady looked up. A glittering light shone through the tears in her eyes, and the lines about her pretty rosy mouth, those hard and cruel lines which Robert Audley had observed in the pre-Raphaelite portrait, were plainly visible in the firelight. "'I am very silly,' she said. "'But really he has made me quite hysterical.' "'Who? Who has made you hysterical?' "'Your nephew, Mr. Robert Audley.' "'Robert!' cried the baronet. "'Lucy, what do you mean?' "'I told you that Mr. Audley insisted upon my going into the lime-walk, dear,' said my lady. "'He wanted to talk to me, he said, and I went, and he said such horrible things that—' "'What horrible things, Lucy?' Lady Audley shuddered and clung with convulsive fingers to the strong hand that had rested caressingly upon her shoulder. "'What did he say, Lucy?' "'Oh, my dear love, how can I tell you?' cried my lady. "'I know that I shall distress you, or you will laugh at me, and then—' "'Laugh at you? No, Lucy!' Lady Audley was silent for a moment. She sat looking straight before her into the fire, with her fingers still locked about her husband's hand. "'My dear,' she said slowly, hesitating now and then between her words, as if she almost shrunk from uttering them. "'Have you ever—' I am so afraid of vexing you. Have you ever thought Mr. Audley a little—a little—a little what, my darling?" "'A little out of his mind,' faltered Lady Audley. "'Out of his mind?' cried Sir Michael. "'My dear girl, what are you thinking of?' "'You said just now, dear, that you thought he was half mad.' "'Did I, my love?' said the baronet, laughing. "'I don't remember saying it. And it was a mere façon de parler, that meant nothing whatever. Robert may be a little eccentric—a little stupid, perhaps. He mayn't be overburdened with wits, but I don't think he has brains enough for madness. I believe it's generally your great intellects that get out of order." "'But madness is sometimes hereditary,' said my lady. 
Mr. Audley may have inherited—he has inherited no madness from his father's family, interrupted Sir Michael. The Audleys have never peopled private lunatic asylums or feed mad doctors. Nor from his mother's family? Not to my knowledge. People generally keep these things a secret, said my lady gravely. There may have been madness in your sister-in-law's family. I don't think so, my dear, replied Sir Michael. But, Lucy, tell me what in heaven's name has put this idea into your head? I have been trying to account for your nephew's conduct. I can account for it in no other manner. If you had heard the things he said to me to-night, Sir Michael, you too might have thought him mad. But what did he say, Lucy? I can scarcely tell you. You can see how much he has stupefied and bewildered me. I believe he has lived too long alone in those solitary temple chambers. Perhaps he reads too much, or smokes too much. You know that some physicians declare madness to be a mere illness of the brain, an illness to which any one is subject, and which may be produced by given causes, and cured by given means." Lady Audley's eyes were still fixed upon the burning coals in the wide grate. She spoke as if she had been discussing a subject that she had often heard discussed before. She spoke as if her mind had almost wandered away from the thought of her husband's nephew, to the wider question of madness in the abstract. "'Why should he not be mad?' resumed my lady. People are insane for years and years before their insanity is found out. They know that they are mad, but they know how to keep their secret, and perhaps they may sometimes keep it till they die. Sometimes a paroxysm seizes them, and in an evil hour they betray themselves. They commit a crime, perhaps. The horrible temptation of opportunity assails them. The knife is in their hand, and the unconscious victim by their side. They may conquer the restless demon, and go away and die innocent of any violent deed. But they may yield to the horrible temptation, the frightful, passionate, hungry craving for violence and horror. They sometimes yield, and are lost." Lady Audley's voice rose as she argued this dreadful question. The hysterical excitement from which she had only just recovered had left its effects upon her, but she controlled herself, and her tone grew calmer as she resumed. "'Robert Audley is mad.' she said decisively. What is one of the strangest diagnostics of madness? What is the first appalling sign of mental aberration? The mind becomes stationary, the brain stagnates, the even current of reflection is interrupted, the thinking power of the brain resolves itself into a monotone. As the waters of a tideless pool putrefy by reason of their stagnation, the mind becomes turbid and corrupt through lack of action, and the perpetual reflection upon one subject resolves itself into monomania. Robert Audley is a monomaniac. The disappearance of his friend, George Talboys, grieved and bewildered him. He dwelt upon this one idea until he lost the power of thinking of anything else. The one idea looked at perpetually became distorted to his mental vision. Repeat the commonest word in the English language twenty times, and before the twentieth repetition, you will have begun to wonder whether the word which you repeat is really the word you mean to utter. Robert Audley has thought of his friend's disappearance, until the one idea has done its fatal and unhealthy work. He looks at a common event with a vision that is diseased, and he distorts it into a gloomy horror, engendered of his own monomania. If you do not want to make me as mad as he is, you must never let me see him again. He declared to-night that George Talboys was murdered in this place, and that he will root up every tree in the garden, and pull down every brick in the house, and search for— My lady paused. The words died away upon her lips. She had exhausted herself by the strange energy with which she had spoken. She had been transformed from a frivolous, childish beauty into a woman, 
strong to argue her own cause, and plead her own defence. "'Pull down this house!' cried the baronet. "'George Talboy's murdered at Audley Court. Did Robert say this, Lucy?' "'He said something of that kind, something that frightened me very much.' "'Then he must be mad,' said Sir Michael gravely. "'I'm bewildered by what you tell me. Did he really say this, Lucy? Or did you misunderstand him?' "'I—I I don't think I did,' faltered my lady. "'You saw how frightened I was when I first came in. I should not have been so much agitated if he hadn't said something horrible.' Lady Audley had availed herself of the very strongest arguments by which she could help her cause. "'To be sure, my darling, to be sure,' answered the baronet. "'What could have put such a horrible fancy into the unhappy boy's head?' This Mr. Tallboys, a perfect stranger to all of us, murdered at Audley Court. I'll go to Mount Stanning to-night and see Robert. I have known him ever since he was a baby, and I cannot be deceived in him. If there is really anything wrong, he will not be able to conceal it from me." My lady shrugged her shoulders. "'That is rather an open question,' she said. "'It is generally a stranger who is the first to observe any psychological peculiarity.' The big words sounded strange from my lady's rosy lips, but her newly adopted wisdom had a certain quaint prettiness about it, which charmed and bewildered her husband. "'But you must not go to Mount Stanning, my dear darling,' she said tenderly. "'Remember that you are under strict orders to stay indoors until the weather is milder, and the sun shines upon this cruel, ice-bound country.' Sir Michael Audley sank back in his capacious chair with a sigh of resignation. "'That's true, Lucy,' he said. We must obey Mr. Dawson. I suppose Robert will come to see me to-morrow." "'Yes, dear. I think he said he would.' "'Then we must wait till to-morrow, my darling. I can't believe that there is anything really wrong with the poor boy. I can't believe it, Lucy.' "'Then how do you account for this extraordinary delusion about this Mr. Tallboys?' asked my lady. Sir Michael shook his head. "'I don't know, Lucy. I don't know,' he answered. It is always so difficult to believe that any one of the calamities that continually befall our fellow-men will ever happen to us. I can't believe that my nephew's mind is impaired. I can't believe it. I—I'll get him to stop here, Lucy, and I'll watch him closely. I tell you, my love, if there is anything wrong, I am sure to find it out. I can't be mistaken in a young man who has always been the same to me as my own son. But, my darling, why were you so frightened by Robert's wild talk? It could not affect you. My lady sighed piteously. "'You must think me very strong-minded, Sir Michael,' she said, with rather an injured air, "'if you imagine I can hear of these sorts of things indifferently. I know I shall never be able to see Mr. Audley again.' "'And you shall not, my dear, you shall not.' "'You said just now you would have him here,' murmured Lady Audley. "'But I will not, my darling girl, if his presence annoys you. Good heaven! Lucy, can you imagine for a moment that I have any higher wish than to promote your happiness?' I will consult some London physician about Robert, and let him discover if there is really anything the matter with my poor brother's only son. You shall not be annoyed, Lucy." "'You must think me very unkind, dear,' said my lady. "'And I know I ought not to be annoyed by the poor fellow. But he really seems to have taken some absurd notion into his head about me.' "'About you, Lucy?' cried Sir Michael. "'Yes, dear. He seems to connect me in some vague manner, which I cannot quite understand with the disappearance of this Mr. Tallboys. "'Impossible, Lucy! You must have misunderstood him.' "'I don't think so.' "'Then he must be mad,' said the baronet. 
He must be mad. I will wait till he goes back to town, and then send someone to his chambers to talk to him. Good heaven! What a mysterious business this is! I fear I have distressed you, darling, murmured Lady Audley. Yes, my dear, I am very much distressed by what you have told me, but you were quite right to talk to me frankly about this dreadful business. I must think it over, dearest, and try and decide what is best to be done. My lady rose from the low ottoman on which she had been seated. The fire had burned down, and there was only a faint glow of red light in the room. Lucy Audley bent over her husband's chair, and put her lips to his broad forehead. "'How good you have always been to me, dear,' she whispered softly. "'You would never let any one influence you against me, would you, dear?' "'Influence me against you?' repeated the baronet. "'No, my love.' "'Because you know, dear,' pursued my lady, "'there are wicked people as well as mad people in the world, and there may be some persons to whose interest it would be to injure me.' "'They had better not try it, then, my dear.' answered Sir Michael. They would find themselves in rather a dangerous position if they did. Lady Audley laughed aloud, with a gay, triumphant, silvery peal of laughter that vibrated through the quiet room. "'My own dear darling,' she said, "'I know you love me. And now I must run away, dear, for it's past seven o'clock. I was engaged to dine at Mrs. Monsford's, but I must send a groom with a message of apology.' for Mr. Audley has made me quite unfit for company. I shall stay at home and nurse you, dear. You'll go to bed very early, won't you, and take great care of yourself?" "'Yes, dear.' My lady tripped out of the room to give her orders about the message that was to be carried to the house at which she was to have dined. She paused for a moment as she closed the library door. She paused, and laid her hand about her breast, to check the rapid throbbing of her heart. "'I have been afraid of you, Mr. Robert Audley,' she thought but perhaps the time may come in which you will have cause to be afraid of me. End of chapter 30「Chapter 31 of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, Please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 31. Phoebe's Petition. The division between Lady Audley and her stepdaughter had not become any narrower in the two months which had elapsed since the pleasant Christmas holiday time had been kept at Audley Court. There was no open warfare between the two women. There was only an armed neutrality— broken every now and then by brief feminine skirmishes and transient wordy tempests. I am sorry to say that Alicia would very much have preferred a hearty pitched battle to this silent and undemonstrative disunion, but it was not very easy to quarrel with my lady. She had soft answers for the turning away of wrath. She could smile bewitchingly at her stepdaughter's open petulance, and laugh merrily at the young lady's ill-temper. Perhaps had she been less amiable, had she been more like Alicia in disposition, the two ladies might have expended their enmity in one tremendous quarrel, and might ever afterward have been affectionate and friendly. But Lucy Audley would not make war. She carried forward the sum of her dislike, and put it out at a steady rate of interest, until the breach between her stepdaughter and herself, widening a little every day, became a great gulf, utterly impassable by olive-branch-bearing doves from either side of the abyss. There can be no reconciliation where there is no open warfare. There must be a battle— 
a brave, boisterous battle, with pennants waving and cannon roaring, before there can be peaceful treaties and enthusiastic shaking of hands. Perhaps the union between France and England owes its greatest force to the recollection of Cressy and Waterloo, Navarino and Trafalgar. We have hated each other and licked each other and had it out, as the common phrase goes, and we can afford now to fall into each other's arms and vow eternal friendship and everlasting brotherhood. Let us hope that when northern Yankeedom has decimated and been decimated, blustering Jonathan may fling himself upon his southern brother's breast, forgiving and forgiven. Alicia Audley and her father's pretty wife had plenty of room for the comfortable indulgence of their dislike in the spacious old mansion. My lady had her own apartments, as we know, luxurious chambers in which all conceivable elegancies had been gathered for the comfort of their occupant. Alicia had her own rooms in another part of the large house. She had her favorite mare, her Newfoundland dog, and her drawing materials, and she made herself tolerably happy. She was not very happy, this frank, generous-hearted girl, for it was scarcely possible that she could altogether be at ease in the constrained atmosphere of the court. Her father was changed— that dear father over whom she had once reigned supreme with the boundless authority of a spoiled child, had accepted another ruler, and submitted to a new dynasty. Little by little my lady's petty power made itself felt in that narrow household, and Alicia saw her father gradually lured across the gulf that divided Lady Audley from her stepdaughter, until he stood at last quite upon the other side of the abyss, and looked coldly upon his only child across that widening chasm. Alicia felt that he was lost to her. My lady's beaming smiles, my lady's winning words, my lady's radiant glances and bewitching graces had done their work of enchantment, and Sir Michael had grown to look upon his daughter as a somewhat willful and capricious young person, who had behaved with determined unkindness to the wife he loved. Poor Alicia saw all this, and bore her burden as well as she could. It seemed very hard to be a handsome, grey-eyed heiress, with dogs and horses and servants at her command, and yet to be so much alone in the world— as to know of not one friendly ear into which she might pour her sorrows. "'If Bob was good for anything, I could have told him how unhappy I am,' thought Miss Audley. "'But I may just as well tell Caesar my troubles for any consolation I should get from Cousin Robert.' Sir Michael Audley obeyed his pretty nurse, and went to bed a little after nine o'clock upon this bleak March evening. Perhaps the baronet's bedroom was about the pleasantest retreat that an invalid could have chosen in such cold and cheerless weather— the dark green velvet curtains were drawn before the windows, and about the ponderous bed. The wood fire burned redly upon the broad hearth. The reading-lamp was lighted upon a delicious little table close to Sir Michael's pillow, and a heap of magazines and newspapers had been arranged by my lady's own fair hands for the pleasure of the invalid. Lady Audley sat by the bedside for about ten minutes, talking to her husband, talking very seriously, about this strange and awful question, Robert Audley's lunacy— but at the end of that time she rose and bade her husband good-night. She lowered the green silk shade before the reading-lamp, adjusting it carefully for the repose of the baronet's eyes. "'I shall leave you, dear,' she said. "'If you can sleep, so much the better. If you wish to read, the books and papers are close to you. I will leave the doors between the rooms open, and I shall hear your voice if you call me.' Lady Audley went through her dressing-room into the boudoir, where she had sat with her husband since dinner. Every evidence of womanly refinement was visible in the elegant chamber. My lady's piano was open, covered with scattered sheets of music and exquisitely bound collections of skeinas and fantasias, which no master need have disdained to study. My lady's easel stood near the window, bearing witness to my lady's artistic talent, in the shape of a water-coloured sketch of the court and gardens. 
my lady's fairy-like embroideries of lace and muslin, rainbow-hued silks, and delicately tinted wools littered the luxurious apartment, while the looking-glasses, cunningly placed at angles and opposite corners by an artistic upholsterer, multiplied my lady's image, and in that image reflected the most beautiful object in the enchanted chamber. Amid all this lamplight, gilding, color, wealth, and beauty, Lucy Audley sat down on a low seat by the fire to think. If Mr. Holman Hunt could have peeped into the pretty boudoir, I think the picture would have been photographed upon his brain to be reproduced by and by, upon a bishop's half-length for the glorification of the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood. My lady, in that half-recumbent attitude, with her elbow resting on one knee, and her perfect chin supported by her hand, the rich folds of drapery falling away in long, undulating lines from the exquisite outline of her figure, and the luminous rose-coloured firelight enveloping her in a soft haze, only broken by the golden glitter of her yellow hair, beautiful in herself, but made bewilderingly beautiful by the gorgeous surroundings which adorn the shrine of her loveliness. Drinking cups of gold and ivory, chiselled by Benvenuto Cellini, cabinets of buhl and porcelain, bearing the cipher of Austrian Marie Antoinette, amid devices of rosebuds and true lovers' knots, birds and butterflies, cupidons and shepherdesses, goddesses, courtiers, cottagers, and milkmaids, statuettes of Parisian marble and biscuit china, gilded baskets of hothouse flowers, fantastical caskets of Indian filigree work, fragile teacups of turquoise china, adorned by medallion miniatures of Louis the Great and Louis the Well-Beloved, Louise de la Valliere, Athenée de Montespin, and Marie-Jeanne Gombard de Vaubernier, cabinet pictures and gilded mirrors, shimmering satin and diaphanous lace, all that gold can buy or art devise had been gathered together for the beautification of this quiet chamber, in which my lady sat listening to the morning of the shrill March wind, and the flapping of the ivy leaves against the casements, and looking into the red chasms and the burning coals. I should be preaching a very stale sermon, and harping upon a very familiar moral, if I were to seize this opportunity of declaiming against art and beauty, because my lady was more wretched in this elegant apartment than many a half-starved seamstress in her dreary garret. She was wretched by reason of a wound which lay too deep for the possibility of any solace from such plasters as wealth and luxury. But her wretchedness was of an abnormal nature, and I can see no occasion for seizing upon the fact of her misery as an argument in favour of poverty and discomfort as opposed to opulence. The Benvenuto Cellini carvings and the Sevres porcelain could not give her happiness, because she had passed out of their region. She was no longer innocent, and the pleasure we take in art and loveliness being an innocent pleasure, had passed beyond her reach. Six or seven years before, she would have been happy in the possession of this little Aladdin's palace, but she had wandered out of the circle of careless, pleasure-seeking creatures. She had strayed far away into a desolate labyrinth of guilt and treachery, terror and crime, and all the treasures that had been collected for her could have given her no pleasure but one, the pleasure of flinging them into a heap beneath her feet and trampling upon them, and destroying them in her cruel despair. There were some things that would have inspired her with an awful joy, a horrible rejoicing. If Robert Audley, her pitiless enemy, her unrelenting pursuer, had lain dead in the adjoining chamber, she would have exulted over his bier. What pleasures could have remained for Lucretia Borgia and Catherine de Medici, when the dreadful boundary line between innocence and guilt was passed, and the lost creature stood upon the lonely outer side? Only horrible, vengeful joys, and treacherous delights were left for these miserable women. With what disdainful bitterness they must have watched the frivolous vanities, the petty deceptions, the paltry sins of ordinary offenders! 
Perhaps they took a horrible pride in the enormity of their wickedness, in this divinity of hell, which made them greatest among sinful creatures. My lady, brooding by the fire in her lonely chamber, with her large clear blue eyes fixed upon the yawning gulfs of lurid crimson and the burning coals, may have thought of many things very far away from the terribly silent struggle in which she was engaged. She may have thought of long-ago years of childish innocence, childish follies and selfishness, of frivolous feminine sins that had weighed very lightly upon her conscience. Perhaps in that retrospective reverie, she recalled that early time in which she had first looked in the glass and discovered that she was beautiful, that fatal early time in which she had first begun to look upon her loveliness as a right divine, a boundless possession which was to be a set-off against all girlish shortcomings, a counterbalance of every youthful sin. Did she remember the day in which that fairy dower of beauty had first taught her to be selfish and cruel, indifferent to the joys and sorrows of others, cold-hearted and capricious, greedy of admiration, exacting and tyrannical with that petty woman's tyranny which is the worst of despotism? Did she trace every sin of her life back to its true source? And did she discover that poisoned fountain in her own exaggerated estimate of the value of a pretty face? Surely, if her thoughts wandered so far along the backward current of her life, she must have repented in bitterness and despair of that first day in which the master passions of her life had become her rulers, and the three demons of vanity, selfishness, and ambition had joined hands and said, This woman is our slave. Let us see what she will become under our guidance. How small those first youthful airs seemed as my lady looked back upon them in that long reverie by the lonely hearth! What small vanities! What petty cruelties! A triumph over a schoolfellow! a flirtation with the lover of a friend, an assertion of the right divine invested in blue eyes and shimmering golden-tinted hair. But how terribly that narrow pathway had widened out into the broad high-road of sin, and how swift the footsteps had become upon the now familiar way! My lady twisted her fingers in her loose amber curls, and made as if she would have torn them from her head. But even in that moment of mute despair the unyielding dominion of beauty asserted itself, and she released the poor tangled glitter of ringlets, leaving them to make a halo round her head in the dim firelight. "'I was not wicked when I was young,' she thought, as she stared gloomingly at the fire. "'I was only thoughtless. I never did any harm—at least, willfully. Have I ever been really wicked, I wonder?' she mused. "'My worst wickednesses have been the result of wild impulses, and not of deeply laid plots. I am not like the women I have read of who have lain night after night in the horrible darkness and stillness, planning out treacherous deeds, and arranging every circumstance of an appointed crime. I wonder whether they suffered, those women, whether they ever suffered as— Her thoughts wandered away into a weary maze of confusion. Suddenly she drew herself up with a proud, defiant gesture, and her eyes glittered with a light that was not entirely reflected from the fire. "'You are mad, Mr. Robert Audley,' she said. "'You are mad!' and your fancies are a madman's fancies. I know what madness is. I know its signs and tokens, and I say that you are mad." She put her hand to her head, as if thinking of something which confused and bewildered her, and which she found it difficult to contemplate with calmness. "'Dare I defy him?' she muttered. "'Dare I? Dare I? Will he stop now that he has once gone so far? Will he stop for fear of me?' Will he stop for fear of me when the thought of what his uncle must suffer has not stopped him? Will anything stop him but death?" She pronounced the last words in an awful whisper, and with her head bent forward, her eyes dilated, 
and her lips still parted as they had been parted in her utterance of that final word, death. She sat blankly staring at the fire. "'I can't plot horrible things,' she muttered presently. "'My brain isn't strong enough, or I'm not wicked enough, or brave enough. If I met Robert Audley in those lonely gardens as I—' The current of her thoughts was interrupted by a cautious knocking at her door. She rose suddenly, startled by any sound in the stillness of her room. She rose and threw herself into a low chair near the fire. She flung her beautiful head back upon the soft cushions, and took a book from the table near her. Insignificant as this action was, it spoke very plainly. It spoke very plainly of ever-recurring fears, of fatal necessities for concealment, of a mind that in its silent agonies was ever alive to the importance of outward effect. It told more plainly than anything else could have told, how complete an actress my lady had been made by the awful necessity of her life. The modest rap at the door was repeated. "'Come in!' cried Lady Audley, in her liveliest tone. The door was opened with that respectful noiselessness peculiar to a well-bred servant, and a young woman, plainly dressed, and carrying some of the cold March winds in the fold of her garments, crossed the threshold of the apartment, and lingered near the door, waiting permission to approach the inner regions of my lady's retreat. It was Phoebe Marks, the pale-faced wife of the Mount Stanning innkeeper. "'I beg pardon, my lady, for intruding without leave,' she said. "'But I thought I might venture to come straight up without waiting for permission.' "'Yes, yes, Phoebe, to be sure. Take off your bonnet, you wretched, cold-looking creature, and come sit down here.' Lady Audley pointed to the low ottoman upon which she had herself been seated a few minutes before. The lady's maid had often sat upon it, listening to her mistress's prattle in the old days, when she had been my lady's chief companion and confidant. "'Sit down here, Phoebe,' Lady Audley repeated. "'Sit down here and talk to me. I am very glad you came here to-night. I was horribly lonely in this dreary place.' My lady shivered and looked round at the bright collection of bric-a-brac, as if the sevres and bronze, the buhl and ormolu, had been the mouldering adornments of some ruined castle. The dreary wretchedness of her thoughts had communicated itself to every object about her, and all outer things took their colour from that weary inner life, which held its slow course of secret anguish in her breast. She had spoken the entire truth in saying that she was glad of her lady's maid's visit. Her frivolous nature clung to this weak shelter in the hour of her fear and suffering. There were sympathies between her and this girl, who was like herself, inwardly as well as outwardly, like herself, selfish, and cold and cruel eager for her own advancement, and greedy of opulence and elegance, angry with the lot that had been cast her, and weary of dull dependence. My lady hated Alicia for her frank, passionate, generous, daring nature. She hated her stepdaughter, and clung to this pale-faced, pale-haired girl, whom she thought neither better nor worse than herself. Phoebe Marks obeyed her late mistress's commands, and took off her bonnet before seating herself on the ottoman at Lady Audley's feet. Her smooth bands of light hair were unruffled by the March winds. Her trimly made drab dress and linen collar were as neatly arranged as they could have been, had she only that moment completed her toilet. "'Sir Michael is better, I hope, my lady,' she said. "'Yes, Phoebe, much better. He is asleep. You may close that door,' added Lady Audley, with a motion of her head toward the door of communication between the rooms, which had been left open. Mrs. Marks obeyed submissively, and then returned to her seat. "'I am very, very unhappy, Phoebe,' my lady said fretfully. "'Wretchedly miserable.' "'About the secret?' asked Mrs. Marks, in a half-whisper. My lady did not notice that question. 
She resumed in the same complaining tone. She was glad to be able to complain even to this lady's maid. She had brooded over her fears, and had suffered in secret so long, that it was an inexpressible relief to her to bemoan her fate aloud. "'I am cruelly persecuted and harassed, Phoebe Marks,' she said. "'I am pursued and tormented by a man whom I never injured, whom I have never wished to injure. I am never suffered to rest by this relentless tormentor, and—' She paused, staring at the fire again, as she had done in her loneliness lost again in the dark intricacies of thought which wandered hither and thither, in a dreadful chaos of terrified bewilderments, she could not come to any fixed conclusion. Phoebe Marks watched my lady's face, looking upward at her late mistress with pale, anxious eyes, that only relaxed their watchfulness when Lady Audley's glance met that of her companion. "'I think I know whom you mean, my lady,' said the innkeeper's wife, after a pause. "'I think I know who it is who is so cruel to you.' "'Oh, of course!' answered my lady bitterly. "'My secrets are everybody's secrets. You know all about it, no doubt.' "'The person is a gentleman, is he not, my lady?' "'Yes.' "'A gentleman who came to the castle inn two months ago, when I warned you—' "'Yes, yes,' answered my lady impatiently. "'I thought so. The same gentleman is at our place to-night, my lady.' Lady Audley started up from her chair, started up as if she would have done something desperate in her despairing fury but she sank back again with a weary, querulous sigh. What warfare could such a feeble creature wage against her fate? What could she do but wind like a hunted hare till she found her way back to the starting-point of the cruel chase, to be there trampled down by her pursuers? "'At the Castle Inn!' she cried. "'I might have known as much. He has gone there to wring my secrets from your husband. Fool!' she exclaimed, suddenly turning upon Phoebe Marks in a transport of anger. Do you want to destroy me that you have left those two men together?" Mrs. Marks clasped her hands piteously. "'I didn't come away of my own free will, my lady,' she said. "'No one could have been more unwilling to leave the house than I was this night. I was sent here.' "'Who sent you here?' "'Luke, my lady. You can't tell how hard he can be upon me if I go against him. Why did he send you?' The innkeeper's wife dropped her eyelids under Lady Audley's angry glances and hesitated confusedly before she answered this question. "'Indeed, my lady,' she stammered, "'I didn't want to come. I told Luke that it was too bad for us to worry you, first asking this favour, and then asking that, and never leaving you alone for a month together. But—but he bore me down with his loud, blustering talk, and he made me come.' "'Yes, yes,' cried Lady Audley, impatiently. "'I know that. I want to know why you have come.' "'Why, you know, my lady,' answered Phoebe, half-reluctantly, Luke is very extravagant, and all I can say to him, I can't get him to be careful or steady. He's not sober, and when he's drinking with a lot of rough countrymen, and drinking perhaps even more than they do, it isn't likely that his head can be very clear for accounts. If it hadn't been for me, we should have been ruined before this, and hard as I've tried, I haven't been able to keep the ruin off. You remember giving me the money for the brewer's bill, my lady?" "'Yes, I remember very well,' answered Lucy Audley, with a bitter laugh for I wanted that money to pay my own bills. I know you did, my lady, and it was very, very hard for me to have to come and ask you for it, after all that we'd received from you before. But that isn't the worst. When Luke sent me down here to beg the favour of that help, he never told me that the Christmas rent was still owing. But it was, my lady, and it's owing now, and—and there's a bailiff in the house to-night, and we're to be sold up to-morrow unless—unless I pay your rent, I suppose cried Lucy oddly. I might have guessed what was coming. 
"'Indeed, indeed, my lady, I wouldn't have asked it,' sobbed Phoebe Marks. "'But he made me come.' "'Yes,' answered my lady bitterly. "'He made you come. And he will make you come whenever he pleases, and whenever he wants money for the gratification of his low vices. And you and he are my pensioners as long as I live, or as long as I have any money to give. For I suppose when my purse is empty and my credit ruined, you and your husband will turn upon me, and sell me to the highest bidder. Do you know, Phoebe Marks, that my jewel-case has been half empty to meet your claims? Did you know that my pin-money, which I thought such a princely allowance when my marriage settlement was made, and when I was a poor governess at Mr. Dawson's, heaven help me, my pin-money has been overdrawn half a year to satisfy your demands? What can I do to appease you? Shall I sell my Marie Antoinette cabinet, or my Pompadour china, Leroy's and Benson's Ormolu clocks, or my Gobelin tapestry chairs and ottomans? How shall I satisfy you next? Oh, my lady, my lady, cried Phoebe piteously, don't be so cruel to me. You know, you know that it isn't I who want to impose upon you. I know nothing, exclaimed Lady Audley, except that I am the most miserable of women. Let me think, she cried, silencing Phoebe's consolatory murmurs with an imperious gesture. Hold your tongue, girl, and let me think of this business, if I can. She put her hands to her forehead, clasping her slender fingers across her brow, as if she would have controlled the action of her brain by their convulsive pressure. "'Robert Audley is with your husband,' she said slowly, speaking to herself rather than to her companion. "'These two men are together, and there are bailiffs in the house, and your brutal husband is no doubt brutally drunk by this time, and brutally obstinate and ferocious in his drunkenness. If I refuse to pay this money, his ferocity will be multiplied by a hundredfold. There's little use in discussing that matter. The money must be paid.' "'But if you do pay it—' said Phoebe earnestly. I hope you will impress upon Luke that it is the last money you will ever give him while he stops in that house. Why? asked Lady Audley, letting her hands fall on her lap, and looking inquiringly at Mrs. Marks. Because I want Luke to leave the castle. But why do you want him to leave? Oh, for ever so many reasons, my lady, answered Phoebe. He's not fit to be the landlord of a public house. I didn't know that when I married him, or I would have gone against the business— and tried to persuade him to take to the farming line. Not that I suppose he'd have given up his own fancy, either. For he's obstinate enough, as you know, my lady. He's not fit for his present business. He's scarcely ever sober after dark, and when he's drunk he gets almost wild, and doesn't seem to know what he does. We've had two or three narrow escapes with him already. "'Narrow escapes?' repeated Lady Audley. "'What do you mean?' "'Why, we've run the risk of being burnt in our beds through his carelessness.' "'Burned in your bed through his carelessness. Why, how was that?' asked my lady, rather listlessly. She was too selfish, and too deeply absorbed in her own troubles, to take much interest in any danger which had befallen her sometime lady's maid. "'You know what a queer old place the castle is, my lady. All tumble-down woodwork and rotten rafters and such like. The Chelmsford Insurance Company won't insure it, for they say if the place did happen to catch fire of a windy night, it would blaze away like so much tinder, and nothing in the world could save it.' Well, Luke knows this, and the landlord has warned him of it time and often, for he lives close against us, and he keeps a pretty sharp eye upon all my husband's goings-on. But when Luke's tipsy, he doesn't know what he's about, and only a week ago he left a candle burning in one of the outhouses, and the flame caught one of the rafters of the sloping roof, and if it hadn't been for me finding it out when I went round the house the last thing, we should have all been burnt to death, perhaps. And that's the third time the same kind of thing has happened in the six months we've had the place— 
"'And you can't wonder that I'm frightened, can you, my lady?' My lady had not wondered. She had not thought about the business at all. She had scarcely listened to these commonplace details. Why should she care for this low-born waiting-woman's perils and troubles? Had she not her own terrors, her own soul-absorbing perplexities, to usurp every thought of which her brain was capable? She did not make any remark upon that which poor Phoebe just told her. She scarcely comprehended what had been said, until some moments after the girl had finished speaking, when the words assumed their full meaning, as some words do after they have been heard without being heeded. "'Burnt in your beds,' said the young lady at last. "'It would have been a good thing for me if that precious creature, your husband, had been burnt in his bed before to-night.' A vivid picture had flashed upon her as she spoke. The picture of that frail wooden tenement, the Castle Inn, reduced to a roofless chaos of lath and plaster, vomiting flames from its black mouth, and spitting blazing sparks upward toward the cold night sky. She gave a weary sigh as she dismissed this image from her restless brain. She would be no better off even if this enemy should be forever silenced. She had another and far more dangerous foe, a foe who was not to be bribed or bought off, though she had been as rich as an empress. "'I'll give you the money to send this bailiff away,' my lady said after a pause. "'I must give you the last sovereign in my purse, but what of that? You know as well as I do that I dare not refuse you.' Lady Audley rose and took the lighted lamp from her writing-table. "'The money is in my dressing-room,' she said. "'I will go and fetch it.' "'Oh, my lady!' exclaimed Phoebe suddenly. "'I forgot something. I was in such a way about this business that I quite forgot it.' "'Quite forgot what?' "'A letter that was given me to bring you, my lady, just before I left home.' "'What letter?' "'A letter from Mr. Audley. He heard my husband mention that I was coming down here, and he asked me to carry this letter.' Lady Audley set the lamp down upon the table nearest to her and held out her hand to receive the letter. Phoebe Marks could scarcely fail to observe that the little jewelled hand shook like a leaf. "'Give it me! Give it me!' she cried. "'Let me see what more he has to say.' Lady Audley almost snatched the letter from Phoebe's hand in her wild impatience. She tore open the envelope and flung it from her. She could scarcely unfold the sheet of note-paper in her eager excitement. The letter was very brief. It contained only these words. Should Mrs. George Talboys really have survived the date of her supposed death, as recorded in the public prints, and upon the tombstone in the Ventnor churchyard, and should she exist in the person of the lady suspected and accused by the writer of this, there can be no great difficulty in finding some one able and willing to identify her. Mrs. Barkham, the owner of North Cottage's Wildernsea, would no doubt consent to throw some light upon this matter, either to dispel a delusion, or to confirm a suspicion. Robert Audley March 3, 1859. The Castle Inn, Mount Stanning. End of chapter 31When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.